Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What do you like listening to? Um... <laughs> Chart music. <laughs> <laughs> Chart music. Hey, up you pop crazed youngsters, and welcome to the latest edition of Chart Music, the podcast that gets its hand right down the back of the settee on a random episode of Top of the Pops. I'm your host, Al Needham, and as always, I'm joined by two people who know loads about everything. My first guest, Sarah B. A up, Sarah. Hello. How are you? Very well. Very well. Yourself? Yeah, pretty good. I've got the biggest mug of tea that I could fit in my hand, so uh, everything is tickety boo at this end. Thank you. Lovely. And my second guest is your old chum, Neil Kulkana. A up, Neil. Hello, Al. How are you, mate? Very well. I've already said I'm very well. Oh, so of course you have. I, I'm knackered. Um, it's oh, been a long man. week. I clearly need to plug myself into. Um, Noel Edmonds' new positively happy radio. Fucking network. hell, yes! <laughs> I've been I've been listening to that as well. It's fucking mental, isn't it? It is mental. I'm annoyed by the fact that healthy is actually misspelled on their website. Yeah. And um, I'll try some of the networks out later. I'm particularly interested in their jazz network and, to a perhaps larger extent, their horse network. Have you noticed yeah. this? Radio horse. I don't know what that's about. You're basically being asked to choose between horrible banks and Noel Edmonds. And it's like, well, whose side can I be on in this? But there is one of them, isn't it, where it's just him ranting on with his usual UKIP-style nonsense. Well, they all do. All of them are, pretty much all of them are him ranting on. I'll give them a wide berth, perhaps. So is there anything pop and interesting that we've been up to since, since we last spoke? Um, no, not at all. No, it's January, isn't it? Winding up the levelers on Twitter, and that's about yes, it. Yes, really. yeah, I saw that. Yeah, Neil, you were you were going. Uh, you just bring us up to speed on that one. You were you were banging on about the the next levelers record well, being a load uh, of uh, shit. Yeah, and and they, who, and they came uh, back at you. But this is it. But who am I? Why are they noticing this stuff? Uh, uh, unless they're constantly on Twitter, sort of searching themselves. Um, yeah. yeah, I said I was going to vomit in a bin if I heard their new single, and they got back to me saying, you're going to need a bigger bin because we've made a whole album. Oh. Um, and of course, that was followed by a ton of Levelers fans doing various variations of the kind of boom you've been owned type yeah. of memes afterwards. Um, but yeah, why should they care? Um, it was a bit strange that. I, I should realise that when you put stuff on Twitter, these people will notice. Yeah. Yeah, it's awful, isn't it? You are a man who loves a scrap. <laughs> I don't love a scrap. I mean, this is it. I, I'm throwing these comments out innocuously, I think. I'm not doing it to to vex or annoy anybody, but but they notice. Twitter's different from Facebook, obviously, because you can't, like, put settings on it. So, um, but but they've got better things to do. They've got a new album coming no, out. No, they haven't, though, mate. It's, 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 it's 20 years since. Trust me. <laughs> I guess I, I'll so. say, no, I fucking hate the levellers. All I can remember, all I can remember is about them is mid nineties, uh, working in a really shitty office in Newton Abbott that stank of chip papers and fags, 
doing a magazine that no one would read, having a cunt of a boss who looked like Donkey Kong, and Virgin Radio playing that Leveller song about some girl who always felt alone in a, in a crowded room. And I used to think, well, of course you feel alone. You've probably got a fucking Levelist T-shirt on. It's like, oh, I'm not talking to her, man. She's got shit tasting music. No, the Levelist for me, they're synonymous for me with a dance, which is linking arms with somebody and doing a kind of sailor's hornpipe type thing. Oh, they did that um, horrible but... fucking get pissed song, didn't they, as well? Yeah. Cunt's too good for them. That, yeah. <laughs> oh, I hate them even more now, man. I was being really reserved when I said they were a bunch of cunts. <laughs> I've got to think of something that's even more, you know... Nah, fuck them. <laughs> anyway, let's talk about even more past-related stuff because this episode, Pulp Crazy Youngsters, takes us all the way back to June the 15th, 1989. Oh, yes, the last flag has been binned and all the remaining balloons have been popped with a nub end in the top of the pop studios and things are starting to change. And things seem to be getting better, don't they? Weren't things getting better in the late 80s? Um, they, they were get, I mean, in, in terms of, like, thinking about music, I, I'd suggest they were getting a bit better um, by the late 80s mm. than they were before. Um, so, certainly, I mean, in, in the music that I was interested in, it was kind of the golden age of hip-hop in a way. We were well into the Daisy Age by 89, and, and it was the exactly. golden age of death metal, and there was lots of weird pop being made in the UK and US that I was very into um, so things were getting better the rise of dance music clearly affected everything for me 89 in particular this year that we're talking about was the summer of do the right thing and fight the power by public enemy um exactly, they, they were really yes. important to me at that time so yeah things were getting better and consequently things were getting better outside of the charts so my interest in the charts had kind of veered off by this point i'd kind of stopped caring i kept an eye on them but more in the interest of kind of getting annoyed than finding enjoyment and and i'd crucially stopped making those chart tapes that kind of accompanied me through my early 80s for me now it was all about annie nightingale peely and, and janice oh Lennon you see that's like when that. you are, that's when you've become a man is when you 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 put aside you put away childish things and, <laughs> and your, your tape deck and your uh you, you lose that muscle of the yeah, kind of yeah. the play the play and record simultaneous yeah, my, kachunk yeah it's a sad it's yeah my, a sad... my pause button skills yeah went in this period oh alas <laughs> but it's good no it's good you have, you've got to move on haven't you see i was still see i was 11 and um i still um i was thinking about this and i thought yeah i had some kind of you know the charts were still sort of this this kind of you know cultural anchor for me um of a uh, of a sunday night and um mm. i think i thought of the charts as this kind of ecosystem where everything was kind of ultimately in balance and everything had its place like even the bacteria that you that you really hated was there for a reason you know and it balanced even like the the kind of the wasps and the jellyfish and the you know stinging insects like what what the fuck is this doing here but it all had its place in the you know and it all would find its balance you know mm. so i think that was what the charts were were still for me at this time in my uh, in my callow youth I feel like my callow youth lasted a really long time but that's because we've been doing the, I've done this one and then the last one which was another 80s one so you know that's uh, that's that's how it's going to shake out yeah it's, but I mean it, the last time you were on Sarah it was 1987 and it was it was fucking awful wasn't it it was a low point I think even I had to admit that yeah this yeah. was this was the Johnny Hates Jazz which you know I don't know if they yeah. even qualify as an Adir are they even sort of 
you know, seems too exotic a word for them, really. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I, I mean, even 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 as an eleven year old, you've you've you've, you've realised that things are getting better. I think so. Yeah. I mean, there yeah. were. So by the time you're sixteen, the shots be going to be absolutely fucking amazing, aren't they? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there was definitely there was more of a. Um, yeah, like you said, there's you know, dance music was kind of was shifting everything, and hip hop was was uh, was was shifting everything, and mm. everything. There's this fantastic cross pollination going on that yeah. um, you know you couldn't help but get excited by. Really, and outside of pop music, things seem to be getting better as well. You know, we're, well. we're having all this mother over the poll tax. You know, Nelson Mandela, Berlin Wall, all that kind of stuff. You know, it it looked like everything was going to be brilliant in the 90s, didn't it? Well, I, I think, Al, it depends upon how old you are. I mean, I, I was 16 when this episode came out. Mm. And as you can imagine, I was utterly unbearable. Mm. I, I was uh, a pain in the arse teenager. I mean, and it coincided with me taking my A-levels. All my mates had left school. I was taking my A-levels. Um, and I, I remember just scowling a lot at this age. Um, yeah. I, I started going out at night. I started clubbing at this mm. age. So music was now a thing that was also sort of, uh, you know, out there where I could bring my annoyingness to a wider audience. So I was kind of getting used to scowling in clubs, you know, getting annoyed that my music wasn't being played by the DJ. Yeah. Very much like the sixth form sort of centre stereo um, where I tried to put Public Enemy on or stuff like that, and I was told to turn that shit off because it's not proper music. And somebody yeah. Put mi- somebody put the mission or the the on or something. <sighs> so I, I, I was, things were perhaps getting better, but because of my age, I was becoming really intolerable and intolerant. And and my style in terms of what I was wearing and stuff was, was a mess. I, I don't think I looked as bad as I did um, then at any other point in my life. I was wearing some atrocious clothes at that time. Well, I was confused, basically. Mm. Um, One night I'd be a goth. The next night, God knows, I was kind of a a cheap, rubbish-looking B-boy. I was simultaneously (laughs) obsessed with hip-hop, but also all the kind of glamorous alienated bands that I was reading about in Melody Maker. Mm. So I had the hip-hop thing going on, but also tons of makeup. And, right. and 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 also my dad at the time he wasn't working in Coventry he was working in Port Talbot at a chemicals plant and right. he he bought home this really thick orange jacket that could repel all hazardous materials right and I thought this was fantastic and I, and I started wearing that and I combined that with um kind of lots of nail varnish lippy and mascara <laughs> and and a telescopic cigarette holder that I was really fond of right you know Christ knows what I look like um it really was get the butterfly net out type you know attire so um, yeah my clothes and everything else were kind of reflecting my slight confusion and just my general ragginess at that age um so so watching this episode it, it did kind of recall that sense of Confusion. It's all about how old you are. 16, 17. I'm not saying every 16, 17 year old is unhappy, but I mainly teach 16 and 17 year olds. And they are just basically very anxious, confused and kind of figuring out who the fuck they are. Yeah. Um, And I think that's where I was at that point. Uh, mm, Fun times, everyone. So, what was in the news this week? Well, Labour would go on to win two by-elections this day and batter the Tories in the European elections. Oh, can't be long now, surely. 
Mikhail Gorbachev finishes his tour of West Germany by stating the Berlin Wall may not last forever. Ayatollah Khomeini has to have a second funeral after the first one ended with his body being dropped on the floor oh, as amazing. people went mental around him. That was, yeah. That was I wish good. Thatcher's funeral had been like that. Oh, it would have been fucking great, wouldn't it? <laughs> David Beckham donkey kicking her corpse into yes. the coffin at the end with Brian May playing a guitar solo in the background. That would have been great. <laughs> but the big news this week is that Jar Jar Gabor has been arrested in Beverly Hills for slapping up a copper. Oh, wow. oh fuck the police. Wow. What a woman. Um, yeah. And I love that, of course, she she, um, she played that out in the um, opening credits of, is it Naked Gun 2? Or is yeah, it something Naked like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, and she just goes and, and, and like smacks the camera. And I didn't um like I I saw that before I realised that it was actually a thing she'd done. And then I found that out, and I was just like, ah, oh, goals. <laughs> <laughs> On the cover of the enemy this week, Danny Wilson. On the cover of Smash Hits, Sunita. The number one LP in the UK at the minute is 10 Good Reasons by Jason Donovan. Over in the US, the number one single is Wind Beneath My Wings by Bette Midler. And the number one LP in the US is The Raw and the Cooked by the Fine Young Cannibal. So, me dears, what were you doing in the summer of 1989? Oh, my God. Did you get your first real six string <laughs> from the five and dime? <laughs> Um, I think I had a pet snake at this time, actually. Really? Yeah, it was brilliant. What was he called? Eric. Oh, Eric. He was a garter lovely. snake. These are very common in um, in uh, in America, but you don't uh, you don't get the, the sort of black ones with the yellow stripes. Oh, lovely! They're really cool looking snakes. And he used to uh, used to wind himself around my glasses and go to sleep. I mean, it's it's oh. kind of hard to tell when a snake goes to sleep because their eyes are always you know they've they've always they've got the, the blank killer stare. Mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, he would uh, yeah. So that's that's what I was doing. I was a. Um, How big were your glasses? <laughs> it was only a little snake, you know. I didn't have like the whole the full the full Deirdre Barlow going on. Uh, <laughs> also, I didn't go out. I must say, I didn't go out around the town like this or anything. I wasn't that weird. No. No. But um, I probably played the clarinet. I didn't, like, try to pick up a guitar until much later than this. So, yeah, that was uh, that was me. Wow. What did, what did your snake eat? Um, bits of fish and worms. We had to dig up worms from the garden and he would, like, hunt the worms down in his uh, in his tank. Snakes are, right. snakes are boss. They're amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was going the full Deirdre Barlow at this age. Um, yeah. And... <laughs> And um, my my life, because my mates had left school and they kind of moved away and I didn't bother making any new mates, my, my, my life was, I mean, I loved it on a Saturday because all I did, I used to get the bus up to Warwick University Library and I used to sit in there for hours reading books that I couldn't get anywhere else. And the place was like NASA. It was like all really white and beautiful and nowhere else in Coventry was like that, really. So yeah. I was, I was, yeah, I was a geek, really. I was just reading and listening almost obsessively. And then kind of going out and getting into, not trouble as such, but getting myself into a bother about, about other people and, and about, <laughs> about music. Music was starting to, starting to seriously wind me up at this stage. So, so yeah, that's what <laughs> I was doing. And, and I have to say, obsessively reading Melody Maker. I mean, by yeah. now... It, you know, it was my, it was the, the thing I, it was the highlight of my week was getting Melody Maker on a Wednesday, reading people like, um, yeah, Chris Roberts and Simon Reynolds and all of that. 
and and also Simon's Price, I think, had just started at Melody Maker there. So so mm. yeah, I was just an obsessive reader and listener at this stage. I wasn't really doing much. I was just kind of, in a sense, vegetating. But it all proved useful later, I think. Uh, I had big glasses as well, man. The curse of being short-sighted in the eighties means you're brainy, though, doesn't it? That's what that's what glasses are. It's like this- no, it means you don't get laid for ages. <laughs> <laughs> because because also there were reactor light repeats. Because I thought oh, I've got to do something to fucking make myself look slightly cool. But oh man, they were so they, they were they were glass um, <laughs> lenses at the time. So consequently, like most people of my age, I've got. I've got sinuses like Rick Parfitt's, man. They've just caved in <laughs> due to the fucking weight. That explains so much. I never thought of that, Al. Yeah. Um, yeah, because I have this ability, right? Um, it's not like a superpower or anything. But I can... I'll like... be the judge of that. <laughs> no, I, with a small trick that I do with my nose, I can unblock and block my ears at will. Oh, which yes. Is re- it's just really handy when, yeah. you, when your job, especially, is going to loud gigs and standing next to massive speakers. Yeah. Um, um, and I never thought of, of glasses doing that. I was well into my blindness by now because yeah. I've been wearing glasses since the 70s. So anyone else trying them on, it was a semi-drug experience. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, at the time, I was uh, I had a I, had, I think my first proper job, uh, which was uh, I was working at the Stackish Chevalier, which was a casino in Nottingham City that Centre, and really I was classy. working as a croupier. And basically, the job involved standing there in a shit waistcoat, uh, being told to fuck off uh, in seventeen <laughs> different languages. Man, it was fucking horrible. I mean, the best thing about that job was it made me realise the futility of racism. Because everyone's a fucking cunt. Honestly, it was just it was just like a Benetton poster of cuntishness. Oh, man, I'm going to start using that. I think I was the one person there who didn't get beaten up during the time I was there. It was Is this awful. place still there, Al? No, it isn't. It isn't. But it was fucking horrible. It really was. And, uh, Happy memories, though. Because it was, uh, you know, night shifts and stuff like that, I'd, I'd not, I'd stop seeing Top of the Pops by then because if I was working on a Thursday night, obviously I wouldn't be able to see it. And uh, if I had a night off, there was no fucking way I was staying in. I was going out and getting hammered mm-hmm. and going clubbing with my mates. So, yeah, this was a, this was a brand new experience to me, this episode. <laughs> What what threw me, you know, at the very beginning of this episode, it's got a list mm. of the, the viewing and stuff. Um, Top of the Pops and then EastEnders at yes. 7.30. Yes, yes. That ain't right. Top yeah. of the Pops at 7. I only remember EastEnders being an 8 o'clock thing. No, 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 no. No, when, as soon as EastEnders came in, Top of the Pops got nudged back. Oh, man. Yeah. That, maybe that's why I stopped watching it, because I was probably annoyed by the cha- change in time. Slot. You're used to 7 o'clock Top of the Pops, aren't you, Sarah? Yeah, I seem to... Um, I mean, it was just whatever time it was, it was Top of the Pops time. You know, it's like your, your <laughs> yeah. evening would kind of uh, revolve around that, you know. But yeah, and it always seemed to it always seemed to go by really quickly as well. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, but at 7, I mean, I, I, I wasn't paying that much attention. I didn't get... Um, I definitely... Uh, I don't recall getting any sense of rising injustice about moving around no. the... Uh... It, that's it. I was 16. It's a five-year difference. All those hormones raging around and stuff. Yeah. Um, it, it, yeah. It sends you kind of do lally for about five years of your life, basically, doesn't it? Pre- pretty much. And, and do you do you even, you know, do you even ever get over it? You know? <laughs> I'm not sure I'm over it now. BBC One has run Neighbours, the Wraith Richardson film School for Secrets, Simon and the Witch, 
Ernie's Incredible Hallucinations, News Rand, Blue Peter, Neighbours Again, and The News. Ernie's Incredible Hallucinations. That's hallucinations. Uh, Sarah, that's explain it to me. <laughs> Come on. Um, I, I'm not sure I'm in a position to. I don't. If, if this vaguely rings a bell, but you've you've kind of uh, you've 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 caught me on the hop with this one. Hallucinate. <sighs> okay. Well, you're going to have to help me out because I can't. I, I vaguely remember Simon and the Witch. I don't remember Eric's. Hang on. Ernie's. Ernie. What? Ernie's what? Incredible hallucinations. That's I L L hallucinations. Why? Why was he ill every week or something? I mean, what's going on here? You, uh... Maybe he just has hallucinations yeah, yeah. when he's ill. That sounds <laughs> awesome, a, though. It's fucking grim, isn't it? <laughs> that that couldn't have been on. Uh, so, what time was that on? That would have been on after Simon and the Witch and just before News Round. So we're oh, talking right. about I don't know half four. Right. Thing is, the eighties kids telly. I mean, I've uh, you know, I've I had um, you know, there's there's pros and cons to growing up in the eighties, but this was definitely you know they they would watch they would let kids watch all kinds of stuff, just incredibly yeah. harrowing and and mad, you know. And then I think after that they kind of went, oh my god, all these 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 kids are growing up a bit weird. We better damp it down a bit. So yeah. I mean, that could have been anything. That could have been like a full on kind of psychological experience. You know, like the uh, that that thing when the Simpsons go to Japan. And uh, yes. the uh, the kind of seizure robots cartoon. Yes, that was, that was the eighties, basically. It's like this stuff will actually, you know, reroute your neural pathways. BBC Two has broadcast schools programs, the Queen's Club Tennis Championships, a repeat of Film eighty nine, and is currently showing Deadline at Dawn, an old crime film. ITV has screened the medical show Food, Fad or Facts. Well, I've just eaten some earlier, so must be facts. <laughs> Richmond Hill, a repeat of Fresh Fields, DuckTales, Rolf's Cartoon Club, Home and Away, Emmerdale Farm, and is currently showing Where There's Life, where Dr. Miriam Stoppard looks at some frozen embryos. Hmm, lovely. Mm. Channel 4 has run Sesame Street, a documentary about Vikings, another documentary about growing up on a space base in the 60s, 15 to 1, a film about an ice skater, The Survivor's Guide, a series for young people on how to survive the 90s, and is currently <laughs> showing Channel 4 News. Rolf's Cartoon Club being on ITV, that's all kinds of wrong for me. Why? What? I, I didn't even know that it, it, they crossed the line, you know, they, they crossed the floor. Well, well, Rolf's Cartoon Club was never on BBC. It was always on ITV. That was his... It was on BBC, Rolf's was Cartoon Was it? Yeah. Are you sure about that? Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, Rolf Harris introducing cartoons. Are you sure this is the hill you want to die on? <laughs> I'm no, I'm I'm standing there, I, and I know. I reckon say, it was always the, on you know, ITV, just like because there was a Derek Griffiths show that was similar, wasn't there? A sort of set in a cinema where Derek Griffiths played all the different um, people in the cinema, and they showed cartoons. And yeah, that, I'm sure that was an ITV job as well. I don't think BBC had a show like that. Although I could be totally wrong now, well, no, now that I think about it. Do you, know, do you know what it is? I think it's because it wasn't long enough to have a break. So it's messed with your heart. I think it was like, a, was it uh, a 15 minute thing? So it was, it, it didn't. Yeah. And in those days you could actually have a 15 minute show without three breaks in it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that well, might, I've, that's I've, what thank, might mess with your head. Thanks to the internet. Uh, the, the original BBC show was Rolf's Cartoon Time. Ah. And, uh, and this was Rolf's Cartoon Club. Ah, Maybe he just got shifted because 
I don't know, Tony Hart got pissed off um, that he was stealing his kind of audience because mm. the, the whole slow drawing, um, something amazing happening at the end, that was that was kind of Tony Hart's bag. So maybe he got shifted because of that. Tony Hart was, was a powerful yeah. man. And it's terrible, isn't it, that we're having a five-minute conversation about Rolf Harris and the one thing we're outraged about is, is him moving from BBC to ITV. <laughs> All right, then, Pop Craig's youngsters, it's time to go all the way back to June of 1989. Don't forget, we may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget they've been on top of the pops more than we have. Although the theme tune is still Paul Hardcastle's The Wizard, now over three years old and already showing its age, we're treated to an updated opening credit sequence which places the viewer in a 3D maze encrusted with flat screens and pipes and throws numbers at them. Wizard would last two more years. The camera pans up from the kids to a balcony where we meet this week's hosts, Mark Goodier and Simon Parkin. Born in Rhodesia in 1961, Mark Goodyear started his career as a mobile DJ in Scotland before working his way up the ladder in Scottish local radio. He joined Radio 1 in 1987 when he co-presented the weekend breakfast show with Liz Kershaw, is currently on the early evening slot and has been a host of Top of the Pops since 1988. His co-host making his debut is Simon Parkin, a former hospital radio DJ who moved to Radio Tees in 1987 but was immediately drafted in by BBC TV to fill in for Andy Crane in the broom cupboard, the children's BBC link department. He's 23 at this point and looks about 13. <laughs> I mean, they've actually got someone who, who looks young to present Top of the Pops, but is this the most uninspiring duo presenting Top of the Pops has ever been? It, it, it's not great um, and, and the whole thing about getting kids presenters in which they increasingly started doing I think at that time because I, I remember Andy Crane doing it and Simon mm. Parkin and Karen Keating and Anthea Turner and Jenny Powell and all these people made that move from, from kids telly over and, and and they even had like people like Sybil Rusco you know the newsreader yeah. already had one presenter yeah. and stuff like that I mean when you think like 10 years previous to this it would have been bizarre having kids presenters on top of the pop slot in the early 80s. Can you imagine Brian Cant being on top of the pop slot? Yes. It would have <laughs> that just would have been, been brilliant, though. It, it would have been brilliant, but really strange. But I, th- I think it's a kind of prefiguring that that, that that umbilicus between Radio 1 and Top of the Pops was becoming difficult to maintain. This got severed later on because, obviously, um, Emma Freud, when Bannister brought in the whole set of new DJs, Emma Freud is, is probably not going to do Top of the Pops. Mm. This is the last era, really, of that small link between Radio 1 and Top of the Pops. But um, yeah. you can already see, because Parkin's there, um, that fragmentation starting to happen, that breakup of that that relationship between Radio One and, and TOTP. Parkin, had, I think, he has a mare. Actually, it's he doesn't do mm. well. I don't think in the episode. Um, no, there's a few cock ups. Um, and I was looking. I mean, I, I actually trying to remember Simon Parkin and what he did. I found a wonderful quote from an interview with him where he was giving advice, and I think this is advice that all chart music contributors should take on he said Mm. um with radio it doesn't really matter whether you smile or not 
though it sounds better if you do. So <laughs> we should. <laughs> we I'm going to do that now. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I've got a big beaming. I've grin got a on massive there. grin on me now, <laughs> and I feel a total cunt. <laughs> and I'm finding it quite hard to speak. <laughs> was, but you look really <laughs> fucking menacing. So Simon Parkin, it, it just seems wrong to have children's presenters doing Top of the Pops. It really does. It's it's saying, oh, this is this is more kid stuff, isn't it? Yeah, it's not right, is it? Really? I mean, to be honest, no. I didn't. I didn't really. I didn't really notice him being there. He's very sort of unobtrusive, you know, and and very, um, yeah. I mean, Mark Goodyear, I have a certain affection for because he was sort of was the voice of the charts quite a lot. And you get that really weird. Mm. Do you ever get that weird thing when you see one of the presenters and you're so used to hearing them on the radio that even though you're quite mm. familiar with their face, it's still really there's a there's an yeah. odd thing about mm. hearing that voice come out of you know um, come out of a human yeah. face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. More used to it coming out of a radio. Um, but yeah, Simon Parkin, I don't know, I had no frame of reference for him. I think probably at the time I was a bit suspicious. Well, like, you, didn't watch, you didn't watch kids' TV at all, did we, Sarah? As, a, <laughs> as you made quite clear. Um, <laughs> no, I watched Children's Telly, but I don't really, I don't have, you know, fond memories of Simon Parkin. I mean, what's, you know, I, I wouldn't, yeah. uh, I, I don't think I would know him if he stood up in my soup, really. He's, he's, <laughs> he's a very, I think this was probably the shape of things to come, where it's like, the less personality you have, the the better it is, you know, for some shows. Yeah. Which is quite an insult mm. to Top of the Pops, really. It's like, it's okay, it yeah. can handle it. This is quite a robust format. Just put someone yeah. in there. You know, it's like, well, don't pull, don't pull attention from, from, from the, from the talent. Um, yeah. And it's like, no, it's fine. Get some, get some idiots in there who are going to mess about a bit, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is an era when, uh, where Philip Schofield was voted the, uh, the world's most fanciable man by Smash Hits. <laughs> Which is, it uh, like, just makes no sense to me at all. I, I do like, I mean, I was never that much of a fan of Goodyear, but I do like the kind of, he's, he seems almost protective in this episode towards Parkin. He's, he, you know, he's practically holding his hand, um, guiding him through this first, I mean, must be hugely intimidating experience. Um, because, I mean, Parkin only got the job at, at, uh, on children's TV. It was like a lot of us, um, you know, got hired via a phone call and chancing his arm to a certain extent and before he knows it you know he's presenting top of the pops which to somebody his age you know was the biggest biggest show out there yeah and, but i think you're right out in that in that getting kids presenters on there's not essentially a problem with it but it does kind of say top of the pops is kids stuff yes it's not an it's not the nation's show it should be seen as kind of an adjunct to youth programming or something yeah and you know i think that's a little bit fatal that that you know i see all the signs of what we'd see later in the in the you know 90s whereby you just didn't fucking know who was going to turn up week by week could be a yeah. dj could be a weather person you yeah. know um i mean i remember john ketley doing top of the pops it it, it, <laughs> it kind of got you know it, it just became a kind of free-for-all and and this is perhaps the first uh, sort of signs of mm. that and, and also, sorry, you know, you mentioned The Wizard, um, yes. the Paul Hardcastle tune. Um, you can sense that Top of the Pops here, it started to fray at the edges of kind of just being really uncool, not only in Goodyear's suit, but also yeah. in the theme tune. The Wizard was spot on in 86, I think, yeah. when it came in as Top of the Pops theme tune. But in 89, you know, post Pump Up the Volume, and this is the year of S Express, the year of Ride on Time and stuff. Yeah. It's kind of weedy scratches and it sounds yeah. already sounding quite quite dated. Yes. Yeah. Totally agree with you. 
So, flanked by two women who look like they've just stepped out of a hairspray advert, Goodyear and Parkin look like the sales manager of Richer Sounds and his new YTS lad. And unfortunately... In the case of parking, the wearing a T-shirt under a suit look is still prevailing. They don't look good here, do they? A, a T-shirt under a suit can look good. Not just if you're Sam Malone out of cheers, but it, it can look good. If the T-shirt is loose enough yeah. and um, you can see a bit of neck and a bit of chest, not necessarily medallion chest, but a, a bit of chest. With parking, he's got a really nice, it's sort of tight neat fitting t-shirt that goes all the way up to his neck with a nasty hoop round it yeah and yeah he look he yeah he looks he looks like he's been dressed by goodyear in a hurry basically yeah and and, and goodyear's got he, he he can't really speak for himself either because he's he's not wearing a tie but he's got one of those horrible late 80s shirts which which, which has got kind of like what would you call it piping or something like that that mm, goes all mm. the way down the shirt front so it looks like a tie until you're in close up and it's like oh that it's just a shit shirt mate we'll do we'll, we'll doubtless discuss shit shirt, shirts as the oh, yes. goes on with Stereo Sound on Radio 1 FM and making his debut on the Pops, Simon Parkin. Thank you, Mark. What a programme we've got for you tonight. R.E.M. Jason Donovan in the studio as our Fuzzbox of 17 with Pink Sunshine. Like all good managers, Goodyear gives the new lad a nice easy pitch and he just about memorises two of the bands that are on as well as introducing the first act, Fuzzbox with Pink Sunshine. Formed in Birmingham in 1985, we've got a Fuzzbox and we're going to use it when named after a distortion pedal and not a fanny. After signing to Vindaloo Records, their debut LP, Rules and Regulations, just missed out on the top 40 in the spring of 1986. However, the follow-up, Love is the Slug, got to number one in December of that year. After signing to WEA and drafting in Bangles producer Liam Sternberg to work on their second LP, Big Bang, they went all popper. And in April of this year, they got to number 11 with International Rescue. This is the follow-up, and it's up this week from number 22 to number 17. And I turn round to Miss B, and uh, I say, you know, Sarah, you mentioned that Fuzzbox were your band round about this time when you were last on uh, Chart Music. Explain why. Yeah, they really were. Um, so I watched this. I didn't like uh, check ahead to see what uh, you know. I like to be surprised um, by these by these episodes, and so I didn't know that this was coming. And I just wrote, "I am so happy." Fuzzbox. Um, yeah, they really were. They were. They were my. Uh, they were my thing. Um, and I do distinctly remember. Um, being around at my my best friend's house, and she had two older brothers who were sort of um, who were um, so we were eleven and and they were uh, eleven and ten probably, and uh, they were like fifteen, sixteen, something like that. And I do remember um, us being into it, and then walking by and just going ugh, and being <laughs> going oh god, this is terrible, which made me like them even more because I thought okay, it's not that despite the fact that she's basically wearing a sort of um, you know. She's she's wearing extremely little. Is is Vicky Vicky Perks? 
Um, yeah. But it's not for... It's not necessarily for blokes. I mean, maybe it's yeah, just yeah, that they were yeah. teenagers and that they, they, you know, they were doing that kind of grumpy "I hate everything," or they were trying to cover up that they actually really fancied her and just didn't want to admit it. But I thought, yeah, this is a. It was like a, a Spice Girls kind of thing, and obviously the Spice Girls were were sort of um, kind of passed passed me by later on. Mm. So yeah, I mean, I had um, I had the album Big Bang, which um, which I completely rinsed. I had the cassette of that. And uh, it was it was just my thing. I mean, I listen to it now, and you know, it's not it's not the uh, it's not the great album that I felt it was at the time. But that's not you know when this is the kind of age where stuff just goes into your brain in a particular way. And yeah. I have no sense of their um, previous incarnation. You know, their their kind of mm. um, how they started out. Um, they just kind of appeared to me as as all the best music does, as if beamed from the stars. You know, and they yeah. had these uniforms. They had a different uniform for each song which I just thought was the most amazing. They all had kind of slightly different variations on... Vicky's was like a third the size of everyone else's. Um, yes. But they all had, you know, so for this one, they had the kind of this amazing blue and black with like massive epaulettes and just stuff dangling yeah. off it. And, and A nautical theme. Yeah, and just kind of the, the sort of, you know, loads of embroidery and like embroidered words all over it. And they didn't look like anyone else and they were mm. just um, extremely daft and yeah. extremely fun and lovely and I just love to look at them and they were so um they were they were just these brilliant dickheads just like what are yeah. you, you know what are you doing here and I, I thought they were yeah I thought they were the greatest thing if there were any males in the band yeah. would that have uh would that have tempered your uh, feelings towards them was it important that they were all female I think it was, yeah, definitely, because, you know, it's like, yeah, you've got a girl drummer, you've got a girl guitarist, and it is still like mm. a thing where, um, you know, you, you note you note this and go, oh, that's a thing, that's a thing girls mm. can do. Obviously, they weren't, the first, they weren't the first women to do this, but it's really nice, especially because yeah. they're a, um, also they're a pop band, but they have, you know, they have guitars as well, so, um, mm. or they're, well, they're, a, you know, they're a guitar pop band, they're a pop punk band, so, um, yeah, it was just a real shot of, you know, like I said, I got this, mm. I got this proper, like, just seeing seeing them opening Top of the Pops and it put me straight back to how I would have felt seeing this for the first time. I don't know mm. if this would have been, if this if this Top of the Pops would have been my introduction to them. I'm not sure when the album came out, but um, yeah, I I, um, I knew them and I knew them for irritating yeah. other people, which of course is, is great. Neil, uh, I, I think the uh, the one thing that springs out of that little uh, pot of history I did was uh, they've, they've taken on uh, a, uh, the producer from the Bangles. Yeah, well, um, I mean, it, it it is kind of, I mean, it reminds me, I remember it reminded me at the time a lot of the kind of Go-Go's, Bangles, Voice of the Beehive it reminded me of as well at the time. But I was familiar with Fuzzbox from listening to Peel in the mid-80s. And I remember when they came out with this incarnation in 89 with the, with the, with the, with the much poppier sound, some people yeah. did get a bit arsy about it. And, and you know, uh, for me, it was always ridiculous getting arsy about it because if they, you know, even mm. back when they were being played by Peel in like 85, 86, if they were some avant-garde outfit, you know, making a little noise odysseys or something, that'd be one thing. But they were, they were always about fun, Fuzzbox. Mm. You know, and they were signed after their second gig and they had that kind of... Everything that happens yeah. now is a bonus, and and I love that. That um that when and and what was great I think mm. about eighty nine for Fuzzbox is that when they did get signed by Major, they proved they could write and craft you know really great pop songs. Pink Sunshine's wonderful. I actually preferred um, International Rescue. I think. Yeah. Um, but I, I and the thing about Vix because mm. obviously she draws the eye, 
Um, they didn't oversell Vix. The rest of the band were always, for me, featured sort of two. Yeah. And on the actual cover of the single um, of Pink Sunshine, it's Mags who's on the front cover. Um, and she was actually the one I think I fancied at the time. Um, but the thing is, you know, Fuzzbox only really got grief from, from male rock fans when they got popular. It became a whole thing of, oh, they can't play yeah. and they just look good. It's, you know, that was bullshit then. It's bullshit now. These are great songs. And they were going, they always went for it with a real spirit mm. of fun that's not arrogant and it's not overambitious. They, in, I think they were aware that this wasn't going to last forever. So you can see them enjoying it while they can. Um, I was re- I was actually quite pissed off when they split up in the early 90s. I think the 90s would have been much better with, with Fuzzbox in it. Yeah, I totally agree with this. I mean, they just kind of, yeah, it just kind of, they, they didn't have the momentum by that point. And, uh, you know, which, which is a real shame because, you know, it was just a, mm. you know, it's always a timing thing, but they did, they did have this great, you know, blast in, uh, in the, in the late eighties. And yeah, you, you do always get that camera, real, mm. dreary authenticity thing coming from mm. a certain sort of bloke, don't yeah. you? Who you know, you and what's it? And also, there's there's that very patronising thing where um, you kind of have it both ways, where you're ogling. You know, it's like, oh, look at this, but also it's like, oh, how disgusting! Yeah. And you know, you're just <laughs> how did, what a disgusting sellout you are with with your midriff all over the place. But the thing is, and and there's this kind of patronising assumption that um, women in bands who uh, display themselves in this way don't have any say in it. It's like it's yeah. fame or something, yeah. and it's like. Go on, go on, take, go on, take a bit off. Go on, you look great. Oh, that's lovely. Oh, look at that. Um, and you know, it's like, who is to say that that's you know, just because um, you know, yeah, she looks completely different if you look at her like a year before this, um, mm. and yet she's so confident. And that really, that's definitely a thing yeah. when you're, um, you know, when you're a girl kind of staring down the barrel of of uh, what's going to be your your teenage years. Um, this is what you need. Is you need to. You need somebody who makes you understand that you can inhabit your body in a particular way. Um, and yeah. she's having so much fun just being yeah. gorgeous and yeah. messing yeah. about. And she's got this incredible midriff that she just shows off all the time, which, you know, mm. it, and it's just like, look, look at her. Look, she looks so lovely. <laughs> and she's just really saucy. Mm. And, and she's got this. So um, I think it's a gi- basically it's a giant pin that she's wielding because in the video <laughs> where they're wearing the exact same clothes. Oh, by the way, um, about the um, yeah, each of them. I knew each of them as well. It wasn't just her; they were definitely a gang. Yeah, and yeah. they each had it was like a proper. You know, I knew all their names and I knew all about them. Um, but yeah, it's um, the video has a load of balloons in it. Ah, because she hasn't got a microphone for, for popping. Yeah, which is great. I love it. I when... wonder what it was. I thought it was a portable kind of like pole. Because <laughs> she every now and again she just puts it down and does a bit of what would be seen nowadays as preliminary uh, pole dancing moves. You <laughs> know, where you just grab the pole yeah. and shake your head about a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that would be the I think which is the only pole dancing move that I would be able to do. <laughs> but I haven't got any air, so it would just look shit. <laughs> it looks as if I was having a fit or something. I have actually. Um, I I took a couple of um, I took a couple of pole dancing lessons. It's great. It's you know, it's yeah. really hard work. You've got to be able to like yeah. hoik your body weight up a up a sort of you know slippy pole. It's a bit weird. But yeah, that's me the, out there. I could do the kind of backwards <laughs> thing. You sort of hook your ankle around and go around backwards, and it's like wee. It's actually really fun. It's a very that's the thing. It's a very playful thing, and you always yeah. get this like, oh, women are, are doing pole dancing for fun. They don't realise that they're being sluts, and it's like mm. no, it's 
it's there is a there is this great you know joy in that sort of thing and I think that's what that's what Vix was for me is it's like well she's obviously being sexy but she's not necessarily doing it yeah. at anyone yeah. else she's not doing it for anyone you know she's doing it it pleases her and yeah, you know, totally, of course it's totally. of course it's like yes get out there and, and and sell some records of course that's an element of it but people are yeah. so extremely cynical about this and it's like there's just because it's calculated doesn't necessarily mean that it's cynical and it's like she's you know mm. she's gonna look back at that now and just go wow I looked awesome it's like in Titanic yes. you know wasn't I a dish you know and I mean she's still yeah. I was gonna say she's still she still looks great now I, I went to see them they had a, a second reunion they they had a reunion in 2010 um and did a a, a cover of um a cover of pop music um mm. which I mean I have I have so little time for the original that I've really enjoyed the cover you know I thought I've got nothing to lose on mm. this um but yeah I saw them at the 100 club in uh um 2015 and it was just yeah it was just so so joyous and she's very sort of burlesque and very kind of naughty so it's great it's mm. just a bunch of naughty women who were really inspiring to me and crucially i mean vic's looking amazing like sarah says it always felt that she was in control of it it never yeah. felt that that it was kind of insisted upon by the record company or they were pushed into things that they were uncomfortable with yeah. bands that are made out of females like bands that are made out of males i i think to be honest it's natural sometimes that the best looking person is at the front. Yeah. Um, uh, I think that's kind of natural. I think what happens later, and I think what we see now, especially with solo artists, is you don't get that sense of comfort with it. You don't get that sense of somebody necessarily enjoying it. You do always get the sense of, of somebody being pressured to make those moves, to wear as little as possible and to do certain things. Mm. I'm sure most female artists would, would say that, 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 you know, they are in control, and I hope they are. But yeah. Fuzzbox are emblematic of a way of doing something where, where you, you just look amazing, but there's yeah. no sense that you're prodded by the record company to do this. You're just being naturally exuberant and looking fantastic. Like and, of course, the other thing to mention about Fuzzbox is that they were involved in one of the great miming fuck-ups of, uh, of our time, <laughs> weren't they, on the, on the kids' TV show Ghost Train, where uh, they're doing Pink Sunshine and all of a sudden the tape rewinds. And uh, in- instead of uh, trying to go with it, they just look at each other and piss themselves laughing. And they when do. the song comes back on, they carry on. They-, they completely styled it out. And I think that sums yeah. up Fuzzbox to me. They deal with it so well. It's yeah. hilarious. And they deal with it so well. And they have... They have uh, uh, this isn't an insult, but what I mean is they have these wonderfully cartoonish expressions, Fuzzbox, yeah. that aren't tutored, are totally natural, just girls having a laugh. And even by the time the Spice Girls come around uh, later in the 90s, that kind of wackiness and humour started getting a bit more controlled in a sense. Yeah. Uh, and, and sort of almost suggested as a good tactic, whereas with Fuzzbox, it's all totally natural because... You know, they're coming from a Birmingham music. They were mates with Napalm Death and people like that, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, I remember them being featured on Midlands Today. Yes. Um, you know, and, and a big interview with Fuzzbox where, when they were when they were getting big. And then it was straight from them to, yeah, Napalm Death screaming in a basement. Yes. They, they, <laughs> were, they were part of that. So, um, you know, they, they, they took it all in a really good sense of fun. I remember reading in the, in the Smash Hits yearbook um, an interview with Vicky Perks. Um, and the questions were great like you know the usual what have you got in your fridge but also have you ever pissed in a bus shelter and <laughs> things like that and her responses were great just in case you're wondering no she hasn't there's still time 
there was a, a, a smash hits from from this year, which um, which actually which I had. I had this. Um, I had a pile of smash hits from like the late eighties, and this is why I do not hold with the whole Marie Kondo, throw away all of your shit and be an adult program. Mm, no, because I can't. I still miss. I I was like, I'm going to have a clear out. I'll get rid of my smash hits. I miss them. I miss them terribly. But um, yeah. there was this there was this sort of spread of fuzzbox, and it was just like, tell us about some of the things that you own and they were all so so just lovely and hilarious were so witty and <laughs> you know what's your mental age oh, about three and you know um i love my point you know what's your favorite item of clothing and vicky's like yeah i've got these pointy boots i like them because they're hard and if any men get out of order they'll get this right in their ujima flips <laughs> <laughs> that's nice no what, what service just said reminds me i had a bit of a traumatic thing this year i went on holiday with my two mates who'd left school and I come back and my mum had chucked out all of my Melody Makers. Like, oh, fucking years. hell. She got rid of them and I said, why? She said they were a fire risk. I, oh, I've, for fuck's sake. I've never forgiven her for that. Oh, the t- parents are fucking terrible for that one there. <laughs> uh, a year later, I, I, I went to university and I came back a, a month or so later um, and my bedroom had been turned into the freezer room. Oh, man. And I went, I went downstairs, I went mankling my mum, and I said, Mum, you know, if I'd have been like 10 and got killed in a car crash, you would have preserved my bedroom and left everything untouched. <laughs> the minute I fucking, minute I leave the door, you've, you've put fucking half a dead cow in my bedroom. <laughs> it's not right, man. It's just, it's just... No. Um, can I just say one more thing about Fuzzbox? Um, just off. yeah, uh, and then I'll and then I'll stop. But yeah, the um, the whole I mean, I you know you you have to not pay attention to uh, the kind of people who will get really mardy about um, you know the authenticity of of uh, you know somebody who you know if you look at the YouTube comments under any fuzzbox video now you can get oh they sold out and everything. It's like well, mm, I, yeah. I don't I don't really buy that. It's like for me, no. pa- how dare our pop bands go pop. Yeah. Well, yeah, but also I think a pound of pop is worth the same as a pound of punk, really, when it comes down to it, you know. Mm. So the following week, Pink Sunshine moved up three places to number 14, its highest position. The follow-up, Self, got to number 24 in August and was their last bit of top 40 action because they split up for the first time in 1990. <laughs> which sounds like a good idea. Here comes a band who are brilliant live and at last they have a big hit. R.E.M. Here's Orange Crush. Two different women from that hairspray advert I mentioned earlier. One of whom is sporting that haircut where it all billows out at one side like the elephant man. Goodyear mentioned some goss about the possibility of a TV cartoon series about Fuzzbox. Oh. Something that 
something that we're still waiting to see. Can you imagine? Oh, where is my Fuzzbox cartoon? I did. I made yeah. when he when he said that. I I, I made this kind of keening sound. Like, <laughs> why why don't I have my life would be so much better? Because throughout the eighties, there was always one rumour on the go that there was going to be a cartoon series about some band. <laughs> it was madness for a lot of the yeah. early 80s. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's... But that's... Because it's like the real Ghostbusters and stuff, isn't it? It's a really... Yeah. What, what a lovely... Uh, you know, a lot of these things would turn out to be terrible, but it's just... Yeah. There was... Uh, first, the, thing, the thing is that been, a lot of... Been, a lot of the pop stars, when you're, when, you're, uh, when you're a kid, and you kind of... They're almost... Uh, they're like a sort of... Uh, the, the really spectacular pop stars are kind of like... They're like humor, you know. They're they're almost like toys to you. They're like because you 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 bring yeah. your own imagination to it, and you almost mm. uh, you know, and you read about them, and you um, they especially in Smash Hits, they they were sort of cartoonish. They had the yeah. they would bring this sort of persona, and they just um, Fuzzbox were really great in interviews where they'd just tell loads of lies and just yes. you know create this entire fantasy world where yeah. they were like a bunch of mad old women, you know. Yeah. And uh, so yeah, cartoon would have been great. It would have been perfect. I mean, there, there was there was the Beatles. There was the Osmonds, there was the Jackson Five, oh, yeah. and then the, the, I think there was a huge gap until New Kids on the Block and uh, MC Hammer had a cartoon as well. Oh my oh, god, man. yeah, I've never seen that. Yeah. A Fuzzbox one would have been awesome there, especially if they'd have done the voices themselves. Yeah, um, yeah. Brummy accents are under. Yeah, it would have been would have been Lance Percival again, wasn't it? Like the Beatles one. <laughs> Finally, Goodyear introduces a band who are making their debut on Top of the Pops, who he claims are dead good live. Why? It's R.E.M. with Orange Crush. Formed in Athens, Georgia in 1980, R.E.M. had released six LPs and 12 singles without a sniff of the top 40. However, Orange Crush, the first single released from their latest LP and the follow-up to Stand, which got to number 51 in February of this year, has finally put them over the top, and it's up this week from number 39 to number 28. I can't believe that it took this long for R.E.M. to get in the charts. Yeah, they were... Because they were that band you would just hear all the time in a club. Usually when you were going for a piss or going to the bar because it's R.E.M. and <laughs> I'd you dance to them. And you'd, you'd probably in the club hear there were songs. Um, that's the yeah. thing. Because um, I, I remember... Ha- hating end of the world as you know it um yeah which i think was from the previous album for me it irritated me in exactly the same way that we didn't start the fire by billy joel did those, yes. those sort of list songs just bugged the fuck out of me but um i i, I actually like this performance um I, I i i wasn't ever really asked about rem um but um i did start sort of digging them around about now because green is a great album and this is yeah. a good song the groove kind of reminds me of party hard by pulp um and what I like about the performance is that they're going for it. There's no mm. sense of them being better than Top of the Pops or cooler than Top of the Pops. Yeah. They mime properly as if they're playing the song. And, and Michael Stipe like, really goes for it. Very much in the sort of David Byrne mould of, of just throwing yourself about and it looks yeah. good. It looks I, good. I, I mean, you say, you say they're miming properly, but Michael Stipe's in a grey suit with no shirt and he's singing into a megaphone. And to my eyes was essentially fucking about. <laughs> yeah, that's that is how you do top of the pops properly though. Mm. I mean like yeah, we've, we we yeah, have had we've had uh Vicky, you know, one of the one of the greatest Vicky Perks, one of the greatest women ever to go on top of the pops. Um, you know, we're not even pretending to have a, a microphone, just a, a, a giant prop. 
Mm. Um, yeah. And and then you've got Michael Stipe, um, yeah, singing into a into a megaphone, which I think is it doesn't mean that you're not taking it seriously. I think that is mm. that was part of the kind of spectacle yeah. of Top of the yeah, Pops yeah. is that it, it would allow you to um, to sort of to to dick about like that. But um, yeah, he does. Yeah. It, it's it was slightly alarming to see him in this uh, the young Michael Stipe in. Uh, in this suit, looking kind of like Morrissey's chunky uncle with his, with his torso. <laughs> yes, he's got a really good voice. I think he he he's able to do sort of he's able to rock out, but he's also able to do intimacy. If he was that close to the audience, yeah, it wouldn't have worked because I mean, the audience is doing that whooping thing that Top of the Pops audiences oh, do from yes. about eighty-seven onwards. Um, although actually, whooping I do like Gibbons. I do detect a few indie kids in the crowd who I think are yes. there for Michael Stipe. Um, but really, I mean, it's it's weird thinking back because remember in previous episodes we've talked about like Freddie Mercury and Boy George mm. and the way they couldn't reveal their sexuality. Um, yeah. Michael Stipe, although you know, was in the same boat. You know, didn't really reveal his bisexuality until the nineties, and at this point mm. he was in the same boat. He's it's the ponytail that I keep coming back to as well that that kind of that, yeah. that carries my attention. Ponytails are always interesting in men. Um, yeah. They say, you know, I own an interesting pet. And they say, you know, at night I practice karate in front of a mirror. And, you yeah. know, I don't really want a ponytail in 89, but God, I wanted the confidence to have a ponytail. Because at the time yeah. I was getting well frustrated with my inability to grow long hair. Um, all of my yeah. heroes kind of had long, straight hair. And when I grow my hair... Morty Pello. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, but no, when I grow my hair, it just grows up into a stupid big afro, um, a right. big bouffant. <laughs> my life could have been so much better and different if I could grow long, straight hair. Because I would have joined the death metal band that I wanted to. And um, I would have been happier. But um, I, I like this performance. I think, I think they really go for it. I, I'm not going to say I'm, a, I'm an REM fan. And, and everybody hurts is kind of enough to put anyone off, isn't it? But... Um, I, I I I quite like this performance. And I quite like this song. I mean, the one the one thing that, that caught my attention was Michael Stipe was uh, he was wearing his watch kind of like turned round to the underside of his wrist, like uh, like wankers. Do. <laughs> well spotted, Al. Bloody hell. Yeah, yeah. Oh, this is this is how fighter pilots do it and race drivers. Yeah, I, I've got to say, you. Have, I'm I'm very impressed with the close reading. That I know that's the, that's the point of the, of this, but you've got you've got seriously granular about this in a way that that is that is kind of it's, this is this is some next level shit I must say. I've, I've been doing this too long. <laughs> telling you. But but you had to take your crumbs where you could get them. In this exactly. age, it, this is peak Stike and Waterman age for pop. So you know yeah. things were very dominated by a certain sound. A little bit of indie rock on the show. I think at the time I probably would have really appreciated it and, and I would have liked yeah. that. Um, now, less so, but at the time, it was just something a little bit different from, from, from yeah, what the you'd rest... you'd be like, yeah, good on them. Yeah, Yay. totally. This is like what I was saying about the, uh, the, the the delicate ecosystem of the charts and it's like, I don't know what REM would be. They would just be a sort of, uh, I don't know, um, a, I don't know, sort of indie tundra bit of the ecosystem, mm, yeah. um, which is, you know, which is fine, which is... Which is um, which is a bit of that is, is probably what you need. Um, but yeah. also, I've got to ask you, though, about you saying, I detected a couple of indie people. What, are they sort of lurking? <laughs> They're sort of near the front. And, and, and unlike the kind of whoopers and shouters, they're actually doing quite a vintage thing. They're looking for the camera and they're looking back over their yeah. shoulder. And, and that's why they're noticeable. 
the people who are following the orders, in a way, because it, you do get the sense that people were issued with orders when they when they became in the audience. And um, the people who are following orders and kind of waving their hands about and just whooping, there you don't actually see any of their faces. What you actually see is just their backs, really, and and their arms swinging in the air. The indie kids. They're kind of slightly freaked out by being there at all. I think they're freaked out by, by REM being on there. Because at this point, REM had had a hit, but they hadn't done that thing where they stepped up to stadiums, you know, and sort of became like a U2 type thing. They were still fairly, fairly small scale. So it was still surprising getting a band like that on. And I detected like one or two kids... Um, and you can tell they're indie kids because they were dressed like it was 30 years previous to this. Um, but yeah, you can see one or two kids, which is a really strange and startling relic of a previous time because that kind of gets erased from Top of the Pops um, yeah. from from the mid-80s onwards. And when, when you watch old episodes, it's just startling the kids they let on and they let these kids do what they wanted to do, which was dance to their favourite pop music, not be frog-marched into kind of, you know... Um, compulsory hysteria i mean we've, we've spoken about wearing a t-shirt under a suit jacket and here we have michael stipe wearing nothing under a suit jacket it's a strong look which <laughs> yeah it is but it's gonna leave really nasty sweat stains in the pits of your jacket isn't it it it's, is it's not well, that's that's privilege for you. See, that's a, wearing wearing a, you know wearing a, a suit jacket over your over your bare torso really says I'm a man who can go straight to the dry cleaners after this and not worry about the, the cost. <laughs> yeah. You know, depending on the lining of the jacket as well, it's going to really chafe your nips. So, yes, you know, that's commitment yeah. then to the to the. It the is commitment. <laughs> so the following week, Orange Crush dropped five places to number thirty three. Oh man. The follow-up, a re-release of Stand, would only get to number 48 in August and they'd have to wait two more years before losing my religion got to number 19 and establish them as a regular chart fixture. Now here's our first look at the chart from 40 to 31. There's a new entry at this week's 40 for Gladys Knight with License to Kill. Brand new at 39, it's Living in a Box with Gate Crashing. At 38, The Bangles with Eternal Flame. And no change at 37 for Green and Grey by New Model Army. Another non-mover at 36, Vixen Love Made Me. And a new entry at 35, Walt Starling, Malcolm McLaren with the Bootzilla Orchestra. Karen White has a new entry at 34, Superwoman. And at 33, Till I Loved You, a new entry for Placido Domingo and Jennifer Rush. The look from Roxette is at this week's 32. And here's another bangle song, a new entry at 31, Be With You. It's on top of the pops. It was back in 1987, but tonight she's flown in from Germany. Especially, she's at 22, it's Donna Allen. What 
at the end of the REM performance, why has Mark Goodyear got his arm around the girl next to him? Yes. Um, for me, it felt like a real relic of Top of the Pops past. Yes. Yeah, it really uh, and, did. And it's not altogether convincingly done. He looks uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, she looks kind of uncomfortable as well. Um, yeah. A really odd moment. There's a lot of balls ups in the presentation of this show. Because yeah. after the rundown, I mean, you might be going on to talk about this, but after the rundown that then occurs, uh, there's a total mic cutout for Parkin. I bet he was gutted about that yeah. on his first ever Top of the Pops. Yeah. It was not good. Yeah, I mean, the camera swings around from R.E.M. And, uh, yeah, Goodyear's really helping himself to uh, one of the ladies. Mm. Yeah, but but he doesn't look... It, he looks like he's been told to do it. Yes. Um, because it's a top-of-the-pops thing. It's what happens. Um, yeah. By then, it shouldn't have been happening, to be honest with you. By then, I, I thought that, that era was over, that it's an odd little relic, that. Yeah, she she should have been doing it to him. Yeah, just gra- just you know, grab a, a friendly friendly Cop handful. In a handful. <laughs> <laughs> just but piggyback. That would have been great if they'd actually been yeah. because they're all yeah, so that, well exactly. behaved. That's just, what, that's on, what should have happened. Jump on it. I bet they were. I wonder if there were any girl. You know, these are the conversations that happened in the audience. Go on, go on, go on. I'll give you a fiver if you just. Oh yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah, I mean, Goodyear and Parkins should have had their arms around each other, and yeah. that would have been good. That would have been really right on. So Goodyear helps himself to one of the ladies in the crowd and then runs down the top end of the chart while Parkin legs it back up to the balcony to introduce Joy and Pain by Donna Allen. Born in Key West, Florida in 1959, Donna Allen became a cheerleader for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in the mid-70s before becoming a singer in a Tampa funk band called Trauma. She then spent nine years as Gloria Estefan's backing singer, but in 1987, her debut solo single, Serious, got to number eight in April of that year. After releasing four singles that didn't make the charts, this record, a cover of the 1980 Frankie Beverly and Mays tune, is up this week from number 38 to number 22. Serious, that's a brilliant song, that is. is. Yeah, it really is. And a brilliant video as well. It's yeah. just her just looking absolutely panther-like, just getting really angry at a photo of this bloke who looks like he's in a Soul Glow advert. <laughs> and then she, go, then she goes down to the uh, to the basketball court and has it out with him. He's fucking brilliant. Yeah, it's amazing. She has on also, she's doing all of this while wearing a kind of neon yellow lycra jumpsuit. Yeah. Like a shiny jumpsuit and a massive yeah. belt and a leather jacket and her hair is massive. And she just has this incredibly fierce, like, pissed-off face because she fancies yeah. this bloke so much. It's like I was reading recently about, um, apparently, like, your brain... You know the whole thing, like, if you find something really cute, you just go, oh, I just want to... I want to I eat you. And apparently it's because your brain just kind of shorts out when you when you are, you know... And, you, <laughs> and, and just some sort of really violent impulse flashes across your across your frontal cortex. And that's basically what she is displaying here, is it's like, I fancy you so much I'm gonna actually do you a mischief you know yeah. and she's sort of throwing him up against the uh, and then they have and, and they have a kind of uh, you know in the midst of this it's like you go god what's gonna happen here she's actually gonna consume him and, yeah. and then they just have a dance off and it's fine um, yeah. but yeah she's like a sort of Chaka Khan um, um, and they, they also this is the song that um, uh, they uh, used as the hook for uh, You Sure Do in 1994 yeah. which is also a banger um, but yeah it's a shame really that given yeah can't, why can't we be talking about that song 
this is um well we we just well i just did so you know uh, yeah. you know that's a, yeah. um but yeah this joint paint it's it's quite forgettable it's quite a sort of flat performance i think this is something that top of the pops yeah. could do sadly is kind of flatten people out a bit and kind of sand mm. them down and she's obviously yeah. a pro but you would not you know, because I went and 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 looked up this um, looked up serious and was like, wow, I can't believe it's the same person. She's really, you know, this mm. is just a very sort of de- much more downplayed thing. I would have loved to have seen her kind of, you know, rampaging around like a lioness, you know. But um, yeah. but this is this is just it was it was not to be. So she has on um, she has on kind of cycling shorts as as some of us did at, at this time, um, kind of yeah. like thigh length black cycling shorts and a suit jacket. Which is an interesting, yeah. an interesting look, and a, and a little hat, a little saucy kind of um, cabaret like bowler hat. She looks like a cross between Judy Finnegan at that awards ceremony <laughs> and uh, Mr. Ben, <laughs> <laughs> or one of the Home Pride guys. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, I mean, before uh, b- before we get in- into the song, I- I've got to mention that you know, Parkin's not he's he's not having. Uh, He's not having the rub of the green with this uh, with this episode of Top of the Pops because you know there's there's all the technical problems, but also he's had to present this latest one with some bloke who's wearing sunglasses indoors and doing that whistling thing where you put your fingers in your mouth, which is just always annoying. <laughs> he's doing it's it's almost like uh, you know how police horses get trained up where <laughs> they have people just like whistling in the ears and banging yeah, yeah. things and stuff. He is coping man, for and he's, he's yeah. He's trotting on and he hasn't shit on the floor yet. So yeah, he's, he's doing very well. Yeah, and I mean, and, and actually, there's a there's a load of good soul things in the charts yeah. in the summer of '89. I remember it as being the summer of um, uh, "Looking for a Love" by Joyce Sims, mm. uh, which was another great soul tune. Um, but the trouble with this one is, um, well, the May's original is way better. Um, but but yeah. what I hear, it's not really the trouble with it, but what I hear massively with this is the influence of. Um, uh, Janet Jackson, yes. because it's forgotten what a massive album Control yeah. was and how it, it like exerted an influence for several years afterwards. Jam and Lewis's productions on it. Um, so I was uh, I was reminded of Janet Jackson, and not just because I was worried about her boobs popping out, um, because the, the influence of that that album and Janet's look in general, I think, is big. The hat, the moves, yeah. it's very Jacksonite. Um, I, I would say. But yeah, I was, I've got to say, you mentioned Judy Finnegan. I was basically sort of on the edge of my seat, not because I wanted to see Donna Allen's boobs, no. but because I was just concerned. Yeah. I, I, she was just doing it with some gusto. Um, and you just never know what's going to happen, no. do you? Um, but um, yeah, I, I think like you're right, um, the previous single was, was way better, way better. It's, it's one of the, um, I mean, obviously, you know, pop is a, a, a and, and soul are kind of rich, there's a rich seam of, of kind of banality there, but this really is, you know, joy, joy and pain are like sunshine and rain. Mm-hmm. There's plenty more fish in the sea. Yes. Chill up, love. <laughs> Might never. It's it's yeah. it's not. Yeah. There's there's not. I kind of. It's like what's your what's your point, caller? It's not very. It doesn't make you feel a lot of feelings. This song. So the following week, joy and pain moved up seven places to number fifteen and would eventually get to number ten. However, the follow up, can we talk? Would only get to number eight, but she'd have two more top 40 hits in the mid 90s. Great song and a nice hat, too. Donna's Allen, Joy and Payne. It's a great record. Now, here comes the Breakers on top of the box. 
Heartbreaker is the follow-up to their number one. It's the Bangles. Be with you. Up from number 51 to number 31. God, they were so massive then. I loved Susanna so much. Yeah, they were they were pretty amazing. They were uh, yeah, I loved I loved them at the time. I'd, um, again, there's just so many. There's all these amazing women around at the moment, and uh, looking back on this now, it's just like yeah, I was I was set up pretty well, I think. And Susanna Hoffs was was incredible, and they were all really great. Yeah, it's a stadium rock video though. It's like a heart thing. Yeah, yeah. and that bloke holding up the fucking license plate with Bangles one on it. What a knob. You wouldn't be be let in. They wouldn't let you in with that now, would they? No. Here's a beautiful song at number 30. It's Clanad with Bono in a lifetime. It's up from number 48 to number 30. Oh my Bono, God. Uh, at this point, in his hat, looks like... Um, it looks like Guy Gisborne from uh, Robin Hood, yes. Prince of Thieves. <laughs> yes. I serve the pleasure of your name. There's more to Ireland than this. <laughs> now, here's an interesting combination. Jennifer Rush and Placido Domingo, Till I Loved You at 33. Placido. Oh, they look so awkward. They do. Oh. It's so awkward. Like these kind of. This was an eighties thing, wasn't it? it? Was like awkward couplings. Yeah. Up from number forty-two to number thirty-three. I never like two people singing right in each other's face like that because I just think of bad no. breath and stuff. It's just unhygienic. Oh, it's, it's not right, is it? And imagine <laughs> if they had. Oh, if they had bad breath as well. You know, it's just like no. It's not oh right. no! Don't go there, Jennifer. <laughs> oh, it's like the fucking Red Shoe Diaries, isn't it? <laughs> oh. on the balcony with his jacket buttoned up is now surrounded by what appears to be an IT department works do with whistling twat number one still in shots but also a fat lad in a shirt and tie clapping like a seal and going whoa, 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 to try and get his voice on camera also starts whistling as Goodyear introduces Just Keep Rocking by Double Trouble and the Rebel MC. Formed in London in 1988, Double Trouble were a collective of record producers who linked up with the Islington rapper Michael West. This is a follow-up to Cockney Rhythm, which failed to chart earlier this year, and it's up from number 18 to number 16. Let's rewind uh, and go back to that balcony scene, and and you know we're we're presented with the youth of uh, of 1989, and they look shit, don't they? <laughs> It's like Hitman and Her, isn't it? It's that, mm. you know, or you ain't got a tie, you're not coming in. Yeah, very much so. Well, all the, all the blokes have got on, you know, shirts and, and things. And I know that I understand that there are 
um, you know, uh, troubles that men have to face that women don't and vice versa, you know, because you do have to, you have to, you have to have a suit, don't you? And, you know, um, but um, not to, so there's a bloke there with, um, with sort of, um, yeah, with with his denim jacket and his sunglasses because that's how you that's how you have fun. That's how you demonstrate yeah. you're having fun. <laughs> is he wearing sunglasses like like a crazy person? Um, but yeah, the only sense. bit of colour in that bag. I bet he reckons he's Fer- Ferris Bueller there, doesn't he? Yeah, he's he's definitely without the car. But there is a girl there, so they're all they're all in various shades of kind of washed out. All of them on that balcony look as if they've put their shirt in like they've this is the first time they've used a washing machine themselves and they've put it in with um, yes. with a with something black and so it's all gone that kind of shade of dishwater you yeah know? and then there's a girl who's actually like you know made a bit of an effort and she has on pink um you know she's got pink jeans and a blue off the shoulder top with a yellow vest underneath it which i think is a which a, which is um which is a look i probably would have um would have gone for myself Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN you know it was a bit, yeah. of, a bit of that before I just threw out everything that wasn't black in my wardrobe you know yeah I mean what were you wearing at the time Sarah on your on your nights out being all poptastic and that well not not uh, not at this point uh, you know if we're talking about 1989 then I wasn't uh, I was uh, you know I had not yet begun to sneak into I was really boring I didn't start going out until I was you know do you not have any band t-shirts or anything oh well I would have had well not quite yet um i had well i had michael jackson t-shirts so i have one of those i still have actually that i didn't you know one of the things that i didn't um you know um get rid of in a frenzy of of uh of throwing stuff away that i would later mm. regret so um yeah i had michael jackson t-shirts i had um i had a brilliant this is something i did throw away that i that i wish i still had is a roger rabbit t-shirt but it wasn't roger rabbit it was the um it was one of the weasels it was like the head weasel you know the head gangster right. guy had him on it. I really miss that T-shirt. I would wear that now. I miss a lot. I, I was wearing a lot of band T-shirts at that time, I have to say. The T-shirts that my mum would later nick. Um, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, and kind of, it was really annoying. I mean, in the in the late 90s, basically, if you were walking around the t- town centre in Coventry, you'd have seen a sort of old Asian woman walking around with like a skinny puppy T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, like Young Gods T-shirts on and stuff like that because she just nicked them all off me as soon as I was out of the house. Um, but yeah, it was all about band T-shirts, me in 89. Um, the, the T-shirt shop, which was called Poster Place in Cov, was just a, a, a point of reference that I went to every Saturday to see what they had. Um, I loved band T-shirts. Man. I, my mum never nicked my T-shirts, but I had... Uh... I had a, a, a Public Enemy t-shirt and uh, every time I wore it and I was just about to go out, my mum would say, oh, I love that t-shirt on you. It's, it looks so nice. 
<laughs> and, I, and I say, "Mum, it's it's got four black American blokes on it in para- paramilitary uniforms, brandishing machine guns." It's because, yeah, I like the colours. <laughs> that's that's the mummest thing I've ever heard. That's like big mum. <laughs> so, um, double trouble. They're wearing those jumbo trainers, beloved of Freddie Mercury and Axl Rose. And uh, I must admit, me by this time, I graduated to a to a larger pair of trainers, uh, mm-hmm. Adidas basketball boots. Neil, did you partake? Um, no, um, not Adidas. Couldn't afford them. Asda. Um, <laughs> Asda trainers. My, I mean, bless my family. They did try and get me the clothes I wanted. But um, yeah, it, Asda. <laughs> yeah, but it was always like cheap knockoffs. Um, uh, I never got my look right at all. And I borrow my sister's clothes sometimes as well. And wear like girls' stuff. So uh, yeah, I was a confused lad, like I said. Um, yeah. Double Trouble and Rebel MC at this time are wearing atrocious shirts that kind of reflect um, their state in a sense. Mm. In that they, I remember hip hop in '89 was just amazing. Yeah. Um, from the singles that Double Trouble and Rebel MC bought out, I preferred Street Tough. But even mm. then, you could tell they were they were getting a lot of criticism at the time for selling out, basically. Um, yeah, because hits like this would, 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 you know, this is a song more akin to technotronic than hip hop. It, it's yeah. the song that you'd you'd likely see on on one of those innumerable hip house comps that used yeah. to come out at the time. But even in British hip hop, even at my remove in Coventry, I could tell that in '89 it developed to the point where it had an underground and an overground, and mm. and Rebel MC was definitely trying to to cross over. So hits like this would get in the charts, but you also at the same time had Westwood. You had Dave Pierce on GLR. You started yeah. getting really big hip hop shows over in the UK. Public Enemy and LL Cool J and Beasties and Ice T and Run DMC. They were all coming over, and yeah. some of those shows were just massively inspirational. I think to like a whole generation in a way. Mm. Um, Eighty nine was the first year that I started getting into British hip hop. So yes. it was the first year I was, I was kind of hearing Derek B and Hijack and Gunshot and We Papa Girl rappers and yeah, She Rockers. Boys. It was really strong with with, with female rappers actually. Yes, it was. Yeah. She Rockers and We Papa Girl rappers in particular, and people like Caveman and and, and those shows that explosion of hip hop interest in '89 had a massive influence onwards. I'd say because yeah. a lot of those hip hop artists in '89 would migrate over to rave later. Because mm. hip hop was it, UK hip hop in '89 was very breakbeat orientated. And it was really fast, so it suited mm. later on when it sort of mutated into drum and bass and other things. Um, yeah. And it was still controversial hip hop at this time, associated with violence at gigs and violence yeah. lyrically. So for me, this is the kind of starting of where we'd end up now, really, with with grime. But at the time, Double Trouble and Rebel MC were hated by hip hop commu- the hip hop community, if you like, for. Mm basically selling out and making these kind of hip house songs um, that were pretty weak. Um, But, but I keep coming back. Yeah. The, the shirts they're wearing are fucking disgusting. Yeah. They're they're awful, aren't they? And shirts in the late eighties, you were talking about the people up on the balcony earlier. Um, You know, I I think to a large extent, fashion for kids then was about belonging rather than standing out. So, uh, so that was happening. But, I think shirts like they're wearing, are, they're rather awfully sort of becoming statements in a way that you were a bit of a character. Yes. If you, if you had some sort of like horrible design on it. Um, 
So, yeah, I love British hip-hop in 89. It's a really important year, but this is the nadir of it. This is one of the worst sort of sort of um, examples of it. There were better examples. And, and already I sound like a snobby cunt, but I was a snobby cunt then. Yeah. So this yeah. is the way I felt about This is the way I felt about um, about this, uh, about Double Trouble and Rebel MC. I mean, the one thing I'll, I'll say in their defence is that, um, I mean, yeah, British hip-hop was... You know, we'd only just got used to the idea that that you could be a legitimate hip hop artist, even if you didn't live in New York. You know, we were accepting of West Coast artists, and then yeah, all of a sudden it was. I mean, I remember if you if you went to a gig like Public Enemy in eighty eight, eighty nine, and somebody British was on. The crowd were just waiting for them to fuck up, and it was yeah. the kind of like the, the general vibe was, oh, you know, how dare you think you can do this because yeah. you're yeah. you're British, you know, you're not allowed. I, I remember seeing MC Duke uh, supporting Public Enemy and absolutely working his tits off, mm. and just you know, he, he got a tune out called Free, which is t- to me is one of the great hip hop records right. ever, you know, regardless of Britain or or, or whatever. And uh, he's just working his tits off and trying to slap hands and, and people are just staring him out. And it's like, mm. you know, and this is a load of people from Nottingham, for fuck's sake. <laughs> Going, oh, look at this bloke. Oh, he, he thinks he can do hip hop and he's only from London. Yeah. That's always and then there'd, be, there'd be this DJ called, I think it was called 2000 AD. And he was scratching and, you know, doing all that kind of stuff. And the minute he fucked up in the slightest, he just got absolutely booed off. And it's, it was it, like, oh, you're you're not American, you don't yeah. count. And all of a sudden, you get people like the Rebel MC and all this kind of stuff. And yeah, and you know, it's a pop song. I'm a bit less militant about this than you, <laughs> for the simple fact that it was it was doing what British hip hop should have done, which was taking inspiration from elsewhere. You know, yeah. they were sampling all the old Trojan stuff. I mean, in this one, yeah. it's. Um, yeah. It's Toots and the Maytals, and it's uh, Liquidator, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, later on, Rebel MC would reflect his kind of reggae roots a little bit more in what he did, and he kind of yeah. moved away from the hip-hop. But, I mean, supporting Public Enemy is always going to be a tough gig, isn't it? Um, yeah. I remember in 87, I think, Pot Will Eat Itself supported him, and it just got bottled off within about Oh, I would, and I would, have, I would have thrown a fucking crate at him. <laughs> oh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have had that. Yeah, we're back to the... Um, the, the uh, Selling the the issue of selling out, which has come up, which which came with with Fuzzbox. This is just a perennial thing, isn't it? As you do get this um this kind of resentment. It's like, no, I insist that you only have the precise level of success that makes me yeah. feel comfortable in 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 yeah. this you know in the landscape, which is which is always shit. But I do you know I do understand. Of course, it's like you're going to feel protective of of your thing, and if you think mm. that somebody's going out and presenting that. They're, they're appointing themselves an ambassador of it or they're like the fr- front face of it all of a sudden you're going to be like hey well this is not this this guy does not represent me you know so I think yeah. that, but also then it's it, like well what, what that is then is you have to take advantage of that it's like look they have kicked open a door in a certain mm. way and whether or not you want to you want to follow through that door you can you know this this has you know brought people bringing things to a mainstream audience yeah I think can only, it's a real double-edged thing, but it, you have to take advantage of it instead of kind of sitting back and going, "Fuck you guys! You you've you've brought our you've brought our name into disrepute." Yeah, yeah. but it's this horrible thing as a teenager that you that you 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 see pop and you see all the shit that's popular and you see all the stuff that you love that isn't popular and um, 
at that point, of course, you should want that stuff to get popular. But actually, you're caught in this horrible kind of elitist trap whereby you're annoyed about what's popular, but you damn well don't want what you love to get popular. You don't want everyone to be into it because yeah. it will lose its specialness to you because you're a snotty little fucker. You're 16. Um, you know, and you want to protect your things because when you're 16 and 17, you pop music, you, you, you are almost defined by what you own in a way and what you listen mm. to. You kind of exist in the space between everything that you're into. And so I remember this is a perennial thing that used to come up then. I wanted the music I love to be popular. But if it did get popular, I got really pissed off because it meant more people were into it. I, I, you know, an intolerable situation because I was an intolerable person at the time. Yeah, no, it's, I, I don't think I don't think you're alone in that. I think that's quite a, that's a kind of human condition yeah. thing, mm. isn't it? Really? Yeah, Neil. If the if uh, if it was just the Rebel MC on his own performing yeah. and not these three blokes in shit trainers and horrible <laughs> shirts, would you be a bit less militant towards it? Yeah, I, I possibly would have been yeah. at the time. I mean, I kind of, I also, with hip-hop at the time, I resisted its attempts to kind of um, look like it was proper music in a sense. There's a guy on stage, mm. isn't there? I think he's played a double bass or something. Yeah. And, and what I wanted, because I was listening to things like Eric B and Rakim, which was just, yeah. to me, was really futuristic music. It, it yes. didn't sound kind of like it was a throwback to jazz or anything else at all. It sounded completely futuristic. I kind of wanted hip. Uh, I I would have loved to have seen a hip hop act whereby there was a rapper and there wasn't even a DJ, just a guy with a small silver card, and he'd press a small button on it or something. Just right. so, just you know something completely non musical. I prized hip hop's. I'm not saying it's non musical. Of course, it requires so much mm. talent to be able to put a good hip hop track together. But I I liked the fact at the time that people were still calling hip-hop not proper music. You know, yeah. it's just some bloke talking. Um, I, uh, but I, I wanted that accentuated to piss those people off. So yeah. their attempts to kind of make it look like a kind of a happy good time band type scenario yeah. uh, would have rubbed me up the wrong way. But, I, you know, I'm not going to apologise for my former self, but I, I, I was hugely intolerant. And I had really definite ideas about what I liked and what I didn't like to, uh, uh, at the time. And... and and this probably, um, yeah, would have bugged me. Uh, uh, if anything, because, yeah, I mean, I love Technotronic, don't get me wrong, now. But at the time, it, yeah. it, for me, this was just on the edge of just being another kind of crap pop house record. Um, mm. um, I, massively ungenerous of me. But, but at the time I was listening to, there's an album that came out, I think, that year uh, by a British rapper. And it's kind of been forgotten about. It was called... Um, the Undiluted, Undiluted Truth, and it's by a rapper called Black Radical Mark II. Yes. And it's incredibly militant, very public yes. enemy influence. And for me, it was all about that that year, 89. So this kind of stuff. Which, you miserable bastard. I know, man. I was a miserable bastard. But 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 this this kind of stuff, which was sunny side up a little bit more, just didn't suit. And, and, and another thing about 89, I'm sorry to go on, but um, another thing about 89 was, I think this was the first time in my life where music came out of the home, not only because it was in clubs, but because I could walk around with music for the first yes. time in my life. Walkmans, I know they're an early 80s thing, but we certainly couldn't afford one until the late 80s. A Walkman was a really important part of my, my, my kit at the time, if you like. So I would walk around town, I would walk around Coventry soundtracking it 
with, with this with this music in, yeah. in my ears on a constant basis. So because I was yeah because I was a miserable frowny sod, um, it was mainly that kind of music that was soundtracking those walks. And this track would have been yeah like a bit too a bit too totally tropical for my tastes. <laughs> And of course, could possibly be the first sighting on top of the pops of the Africa pendant. Ah, yeah. Did did we partake? Because <laughs> I, I really, know. really, really wanted an Africa pendant, <laughs> but I also really, really, really wanted not to have to walk home with my face in a bag. As being a hip hop fan, you realise. Being a white hip hop fan, you realise that there were lines that you just mm, couldn't mm. cross. Yeah, even uh, even at the time you were you were that woke, I'm I'm, I'm quite impressed with this. Yeah, well, yeah, so am I. well, because you you knew. I mean, this was the thing. Um, because I, I I was I mean I bought the first Public Enemy album, uh, the week it came out before I'd even heard one of the songs, simply because I'd read about them in Melody mm-hmm. Maker, mm-hmm. and just thought, yes, that band, I fucking want. I want it in my ears. Mm. And um, so yeah, I, I bought it. It's like oh fucking hell, this is amazing. Bought the T-shirt and, you know, I'd, I'd be aware of being at college in a public enemy T-shirt and getting some interesting looks off, off people of both races. Mm. Yeah, it felt like there were certain elements of, of, the, of the culture that I just couldn't, I couldn't take on for myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, so what I did was I'd got, <laughs> I'd got uh, for Christmas, I'd got a bubble bath in the shape of Dennis the Menace and so I just put some leather strapping through that and, and wore that. <laughs> you know, that's that's my heritage. Yeah, no, that would have looked amazing, man. Yeah. But, I mean, the further you got into British hip-hop, you actually realised it was it was way more inclusive than I think yes, American hip-hop was. Yes, it was. And there was, yeah. a lot of, there was a lot of white rappers. And, and fundamentally, British hip-hop was really an expression, not perhaps of um, a racial struggle, but more of a class struggle, I would say. It was... It, 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 it was it was more inclusive, certainly, than American hip hop, which seemed prohibitively just yeah something for Afri- African Americans. Yeah, uh, and and the reason for that was because unlike American hip hop, uh, the main influence in British hip hop at first was reggae. Yeah, absolutely. You know, London Posse, uh, Asher D and Daddy Fred, all yeah. that lot. They're, it's they're... all exactly. It's all coming out of the whole sort of Saxon sound toasting kind of kind of thing from the early 80s with the yeah, early 80s and dancers, and, so. and that argument over uh, whether you could be white and listen to reggae that that argument had, you know mm-hmm. that had been decided you know decades previous you you've taught I, me around Al. I should be more charitable to this song it, well it, you know. i mean i listen to this song and i think okay it, you know i'd rather listen to this than you know about 80% of the other shit that's in the charts yeah, yeah. but also you know, watching this, I, I when I saw this, it was like shit. Uh, this is this is the birth of jungle, and uh, yeah, and ju- the future of ju- the, the future that that included jungle was being mapped out at this time with these shows that you're talking about, with Public Enemy coming to England and things like that. That I think that blew so many people's minds, and those people who, were, you know, the old thing that they used to say about the Velvet Underground, not many people heard them, but everyone went out and formed a band. Yeah. I think you know. Only so many thousand people went to see Public Enemy or Eric B and McKim or Cool J in the late 80s. But I think virtually all of them will have followed music in some way in the early 90s. And these are the people who end up being the first, you know, jungle DJs and being the first jungle artists. The people who were massively into hip hop in 89. So the following week, Just Keep Rocking nudged up three places to number 13 and would spend two weeks at number 11. The follow-up, Street Tough, 
got to number three in October of this year, and Rebel MC and Double Trouble went their separate ways. Rebel MC went all junglist, changed his name to Congo Nate, and got married to Page Three girl Maria Whitaker. is this week's number 27. At 26, Helium Halib from Capella. And at number 25, it's Bring Me Edelweiss by Edelweiss. Up to at 24, Paula Abdul, Forever Your Girl. This week's 23 is Every Little Step by Bobby Brown. Donna Allen has this week's highest climber. She's up 16 at 22 with Joy and Payne. And at 21, Requiem, The London Boys. Bananarama up 13 of 20, Cruel Summer 89. This week's 19 is Funky Cold Medina by Tone Loke. Kylie Minogue, Hand on Your Heart is at this week's 18. And climbing 5 at 17, Pink Sunshine by Buzzbox. Double Trouble in the Rebel MC is up 2 at 16, Just Keep Rocking. At 15, up 10, The Only One, that's by Transvision Vamp. Former number 1 at 14, Ferry Cross the Mersey. This week's 13 is Lynn Hamilton on the inside. Demog featuring LRS up 7 at 12. It's time to get funky. And at number 11, climbing 12, the beautiful South and song for whoever. Now here's an interesting one. Up to last year, it was always Cindy Lauper. Now it's Cindy Lauper. She's on video in the charts at number 8. Here is I Drove All Night. After running down the middle section of the charts, Parkin tries to get us interested in the Lauper Lauper debate as he introduces the video of I Drove All Night by Cindy Lauper. There, Parkin, I've decided it for you. Shut up. <laughs> Born in New York in 1953, Cynthia Lauper started her music career in the early 70s as a cover singer with various bands before forming the new wave group Blue Angel in 1978. After releasing one LP in 1980, the band split up. Their former manager sued them into bankruptcy and Lauper, who by this time had developed a cyst on her vocal cords, ended up working in clothes shops until she got picked up by Epic Records in 1983. Her first solo single, Girls Just Wanna Have Fun, got to number two in America and the UK in early 1984 and the follow-up to that, time after time, got to number three here. After a number 12 hit in October of 1986 with True Colours, her next two records failed to make the top 40 hit. But this one, a cover of a song originally written for Roy Orbison, and the first single from the new LP, A Night to Remember, is up this week from number 17 to number 8. Did you notice, in the rundown, 
You know the way the arrow flashes to indicate whether it's going up or down? Mm. That reminded me of that little square that used to appear in the corner of the screen warning that ads were about to commence, the Q dot, which has yes. now completely disappeared from British television. Yeah. You, you, don't, you don't see it anywhere. Anyway. Because everything's part. an advert on telly nowadays, isn't it, Neil? <laughs> exactly. Well, you, you might be right. But um, with regards to Cindy Lauper, it is Lauper, I think you're right. I always thought it was Lauper, but um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, some people really care about these. You know, I used to because uh, I before I changed my name, I had a name that was that was awkward to pronounce, and people used to get it wrong. And I used to fume all the time, which is partly why I changed it because it just really pissed me off every day. So hopefully she's not. I would not want to piss off Cindy Lauper no. or, or Lauper. Um, but she strikes me as not because not because she's hard or anything, just be, just because she's lovely and brilliant and i wouldn't want to do anything that would make her life worse um but she's probably not going to listen to this so uh, you know we're probably all right um you don't know that sarah <laughs> cindy if you're out there gives it gives a tweet i've had some te- i've had some terrible pronunciations of my surname um i've been called cockarney and i've been called um, are you sure that are you sure that wasn't just the levelers trying to, that, trying to get I, I, you know <laughs> And I've, I remember a letter arriving one day from Neil Kumsani, which I think, was, <laughs> which I think was entirely deliberate. Actually, um, that's good though. Anyway, um, Cindy Lauper, while eating breakfast, um, pulled her glasses down her nose and looked at me once. Um, no. Ooh. Oh yes, this was in uh, in Los Angeles, right? It was at a hotel called the Sunset Marquee, which is an astonishing hotel, uh, a hotel where Def Leppard used to live. And so did Bruce Springsteen, I think. But anyway, um, I had interviewed Tommy Lee in the morning. Mm. Um, and he'd got me stoned. He'd got me absolutely wankered. Um, because you know the way Americans roll joints. It's just insane. Yeah. And you take one pull and you're fucked. And then he'd driven me back to this hotel. And I walked into the glass door of my balcony three times in a row. <laughs> and and the, 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 the balcony was overlooking a pool where LA's, you know, uh, entertainment people power breakfast quite a lot. And I'll never forget the third time that I, I felt my forehead hit the glass. I noticed Cindy Lauper push her glasses down her nose. Her, she was power breakfasting at the time and, and stare at me. Um, so yeah, I've had. I can't exactly call that having dealings with her, but I like to think that's a little connection there. Because yeah. um, I love Cindy, I think she's great. I know, yeah. I know that in previous chart music episodes, I've moaned about Madonna, and I know Sarah, I think, loves Madonna. Um, but Cindy, for me, is everything. I'm not going to say everything Madonna could have been, but she's just, she's just fantastic. Um, mm. I'd totally forgotten about this version of this song because um, I, I only remember the Big O version, the Roy Orbison yeah. version. But this is a great version, and it's better, I have to say. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in, an era, in an era now where we're used, especially perhaps to female stars, um, sort of hollering the hell out of songs and melismering everything. And, and this, it's a really clipped vocal. She doesn't sing everything she could sing, and consequently it's like really suggestive. And I love the video. I love this video. Um, going from a sort of barefoot Kate Bush red slip to, to Bride of Frankenstein, Elsa, Lanchester haircut, to a ghost, to having a film projected on her back. I love this video because it's you can tell it's hella expensive, but you can still see the joins. You can It still gives hints at how cack it must have looked on set. Um, 
but but I, I love the song and I love the video and I love Cindy. I've I've always just thought she's a, she's got a good almost sense of humour about herself. Um, but as as crafted so some fantastic pop records and uh, that you know that that first couple of debut albums are, are wonderful wonderful pop records. It, it's no accident that her songs have been covered by you know Miles Davis covered. Cindy Lauper, you know, time after time and things like that are great records. I know that she was going through a bit of a break up at the time with, her, with, with, with both her husband and the recording process itself. So the album this is from, which I think is called Wicked or something, it wasn't as successful and it's a bit of a failure. But in terms of a, a version of this song, it, it's probably my favourite version of this song. Yeah, it's 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 just really great, isn't it? And also, it's a bit less. Um, it it just puts a slightly different angle on it. Um, you know, because if mm. it's a, you just imagine if it's a if it's a bloke turning up and waking you up in the middle of the night going, look, I drove all night. Are you going to put out or what? <laughs> Whereas when it's, a, when it's, when it's Cindy Lauper in her, with her amazing, uh, you know, with, with her amazing sort of puff of, of, of black and white hair and, um, and just, and just being, being lovely. Cause there was that, she was like the other Madonna, but she was much more kind of, there's this vulnerability and sort of emotional thing that you didn't really get with, with Madonna. And she had this yeah. kind of glorious, yeah glut of talent and charisma but just and that kind of really that italian american thing but um but also just this kind of real sweetness about her and a sort of mischief as well and a a slight Mm. a slight sort of scruff scruffy scruffy outsidery edge to her which madonna kind of dispensed with quite early on i think yeah yeah but she's doing the kind of so she's um she's incredibly feminine and very kind of you know she's sort of ultra feminine but she's also got this was this was her thing is that she just had like a slightly crazy a slightly crazy look, a slightly sort of, you know, glitter bag lady look. But then she's kind of she's she's doing this she's she's doing this bit. She goes from like barefoot running down the road in a tiny red dress to um being on stage and kind of pulling like Elvis moves. And yeah. so she's she's mm. sort of offsetting her and she's playing around with with um with her own kind of femininity and kind of, you know, and then just doing doing an Elvis and kind of curling a lip and stuff. And it's all yeah. completely natural. But it's this kind of, um, it's an offsetting of of the uh, yeah just just her whole the way in which she kind of um, held her femininity so lightly and just and, and messed around with it was 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 so great. Yeah, yeah, because because the, the I think you're spot on with the with the the way she sings it right. I think you're right. The any man singing this and and I'm thinking of the Roy Orbison version, of course. It sounds kind of pleading. And it, and it sounds kind of needy, whereas Cindy's version, because she's she's not deadened her vocal, but it, it's not florid or or big. The vocal it's very very clipped, and consequently it sounds. She drove all night, and and now she's going to kill you. She it, there's a kind of almost psychopathic thing to it that she plays with. Um, that that's just wonderful. It just makes it a much much more affecting and suggestive record because the scene the record is setting, you know, those long American highways, somebody driving on their own, is a, is an enormously kind of it's beautifully cinematic kind of stuff. Um, and she populates it brilliantly. She puts, she gives it a real performance and a real kind of suggestiveness, so you can make up your own stories around it. Um, it, it's without a doubt way better than the big O version. Yeah, whereas if when Roy Orbison's singing "I Drove All Night," he sounds a bit like the bloke in the Yorkie advert, doesn't he? <laughs> this is the the thing. Um, it's it's there's a lot of women around this time. It's like they weren't aggressive, but they weren't apologetic either. Mm. And it's not it's not pandering. And I think I mean the thing is that I've um, I've uh, 
the the video for uh, time after time which obviously i mean how can you not i I, pr- I practically well up every time i hear that you know it's mm. it's it's the most incredibly emotional song and in the video she's there um with her bloke who is embarrassed by her because of the way she looks and she takes off her crazy hat and she has like you know it looks like she's um she's got this kind of bright ginger copper hair and like kind of just this kind of mad undercut with with like a sort of waffle waffle undercut and hmm. and they all and all of his mates are laughing at her and um and it just it, it really this this kind of really brings it home that it's like you're not these these women are not dressed like this for men and they're not yeah. you know yeah. and that really kind of gives them the credibility then if they do want to um show a load of flesh then it's not like they've they've kind of gone all oh, right this hasn't worked i better do this it's like yeah, they yeah. they have control over this this is yeah. this is actually what what they're um what they're about um and it's for women that's the thing it is for women as much as it is for men it's just for you know it's like um the idea that like belly dancing arose because it was women performing you know in the kind of um it's women performing for each other and they're also sort of, you know it's it's a communal female thing rather than a performance for men you know so, the following week, I drove all night, nudged up one place to number seven, where it stayed for two weeks. The follow-up, my first night without you, only got to number 53 in August of this year, and she'd have to wait until 1992 for her next chart hit with The World Is Stone. good top of the box tonight but looking good too remember double trouble shirts they were really stylish check out sunita's hat on this right back where we started from number four and Parkin are joined on the balcony by three women who can hardly be asked to turn round for the camera as they're too busy chatting to each other. Goodyear points out that if you thought Double Trouble shirts were stylish, wait till you see the hat of the next artist, Sunita, with right back where we started from. Born in Seattle in 1963 as the daughter of the high-energy singer Mikkel Bran and the niece of Amy Stewart, Sunita Malone first rose to prominence when she started a relationship with David Essex when they were appearing in the stage show Mutinette. In 1986, she teamed up with her ex-partner Simon Cowell to release her debut single So Macho, which got to number two in August of that year. After a dalliance with Stock Aitken and Waterman, she released this song, the Maxine Nightingale hit, which got to number eight in November of 1975, number two in the USA in 1976, and featured throughout the 1977 Paul Newman film Slapshot. It's up this week from number six to number four. Oh, and Sunita's wearing a sombrero. It's kind of one of those things that sitcom characters of the 70s and people in adverts used to wear when they came back on the plane from the Spanish holiday, usually with a stuffed donkey. It is a bad hat. It's an orange and gold sombrero, which really should... It's always kind of shorthand for wacky, isn't it, a sombrero, which is, which is quite an... Yeah. 
Yeah, or it's it's um, where uh, Rick Mayall and Bottom <laughs> comes in wearing a giant sombrero with his with his pants sort of pulled right up to his to his armpits and is really happy because he's been on holiday for once and just comes striding in and goes, he rattled his maracas close to me. <laughs> and yeah, that's that's what I think of now. I have fond, fond memories of, of Rick Mayall in a sombrero, but otherwise, you know, I don't know what she's doing, but I have to give her credit for her um, her smiley face earring, which is, I guess, would have been, uh, I don't know, well, it wouldn't have been subversive at this point because it no, it's it's a year gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's not like it's a kind of throwback to like, oh, this is a bitchy. No, it's just. But I, I, I would probably, to be honest, on on some night, if I were if I wore earrings, those would probably be the earrings that I would wear. Other than mm. that, um, you know, it, it's not, it's not a, it's not, it's not a very strong look, really. And it's not, it's not a, it's not a good, it's not a good song. It's not that the song is bad, the version is bad. No, it's just oh, it's, it's very catchy, weak isn't it? Mm. It's it's like what is the point of this? Yeah, it's a kind of it's like a sort of watery. It's like if you're expecting, uh, you know, it's a sort of watery angel delight version. You know, it's like it's you know <laughs> that it's a dessert. You know, it's a confection, but there's just something a bit wrong about yeah. it. There's something really unsatisfying yeah. about it. Yeah, all all of a sudden the Pasadenas are looking remarkably <laughs> authentic, aren't they? They are. I won't let. And, and wet, wet, wet. <laughs> That's going too oh, far. Yeah. That's going too far. But. Um, yeah, yeah you're right. Sombrero chat. Um, I won't let sombreros in the house. Um, no, no, because I have a serving hat, chow, and I envisage difficulties. Yeah, um, yeah. you know. So no, I won't <laughs> let sombrero. But with reg- how often do you use your serving hat on a daily basis? Al, love oh, using respect. it. Yeah, I mean, yesterday respect. I had my dinner passed to me through the serving hatch. Um, and of course, oh, it's also it's also a disciplinary thing that you shut the serving hatch when you want to stop the cats bloody getting on the kitchen top and stuff. So I love my serving yeah. hatch. But anyway, you see, if if I had a serving hatch, I would carry on like uh, like they do in Rowan and Martin's laughing, <laughs> or or that advert for marathon with Keith Chegwin in it. Yeah, yeah, but with a sombrero, you, how could you not? Well, but with a sombrero, that will pose difficulties, of course. So I, I yeah. just avoid that difficulty by not having them in the house. Well, I mean, we, we, when the novelty of bringing one back and wearing it wears off, where do you put it? <laughs> where do you put it where it's not just going to gather loads of dust? I mean, you could put it on the wall, but it'll be an absolute dust trap. Mm. You could put it on top of your wardrobe, but it's going to fall. No, it's it's a ball ache. <laughs> go go somewhere on holiday where they have smaller hats, like I don't know Austria or or, or Turkey. I always um, I always associate sombreros as well with like a clanging lack of self awareness because I used to um, when I lived in Camden in kind of the late nineties, early noughts, and I um, I wore PVC trousers quite a lot. Um, and mm. I could pull them off, mm-hmm. you know. I'm not yeah. saying like, oh, how embarrassing. I've kind of gone. I hope you could, Doug. <laughs> got to, got to be washed at some point. <laughs> so this was, you know, Camden was, you know, still fairly full of freaks at this point, and I really didn't consider myself to be, you know, to be, no. to be standing out that much. And I, I was coming out of um, Camden Town Tube one night, and uh, a skinny bloke, a skinny white bloke in a massive sombrero, went past me, looked me up and down, and went. Oh, cunt. And I just kind of, it stopped me in my tracks and I kind of watched him kind of saunter off into the station in his giant, ridiculous hat. And I I was like, 
what just happened? You know, what, yeah. But did he forget that he was wearing a sombrero? He must have done. I mean, maybe yeah. you know what? Did someone else just? Did someone else kind of gently place it on his hat when he on his head when he was distracted? <laughs> you, you can't forget you're wearing a sombrero. They're heavy things. They no. look like Gladstone Small with your neck all pressed down. Um, but anyway, Sinita. Yeah. Um, the thing is. Um, like you say, it's a crap version, isn't it? And and it, 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 it it's kind of the thing. It's a crap version because it's pretty much exactly. It's not the same as the old versions, but it doesn't try no. anything different. It shows no. no real traces of modern dance music. Static and Walkman Productions, you know, usually had a bit of Italo piano on it or something, or, or they they yeah. kind of techno it up a bit. But this is a very very straight version with the kind of same kind of disco beat. Yeah. Uh, I mean, at this time, it needs to be stressed that she's she's away from the clutches of Stock Aitken and Waterman yeah, here. Yeah, so she's moving We can't blame she? them for this. Yeah, because like, the album this is from, I think it has no Stock Aitken and Waterman on it, although she, I think it's produced by Stock Aitken and Waterman's uh, engineer. But, um, right. But, yeah, the performance is, is full gusto, but there's too much screaming from the audience. Way too oh, much screaming. Well, loads of screaming. And it's because... There and be- there's reason for that, because we need to state straight away that, you know, we've just described what a knob... Sunita looks, but she's the least knobbiest looking person on yeah, on the stage yeah, because she has four hunks mm-hmm. in cutoffs and rip shorts and baseball caps who are really trying too hard to be a bit, you know, kicking. Yeah, um, uh, and uh, it, down. I think it's because of them that the screaming is kind of happening because. It, well, that's that's yeah, it, isn't yeah. it? Because I mean, there's one. I mean, let's go through the t-shirts they're wearing. There, I, I, I noticed. Two T-shirts from the Bulldog Bar in Amsterdam. <laughs> uh, one lad's uh, got a cut-off basketball vest, and there's one with this kind of like Nino Ferretto kind of like bouffant uh, with a with a red T-shirt with the word "kick it" on it, <laughs> and it's just like, yes, I so want to in the in the bollocks. And, and yeah, and uh, the screaming that accompanies every single thing those guys do. They take it yeah. too far. They've obviously been told yeah. this audience, you know, scream, whip it up. But it sounds like a yeah. it sounds like a Victorian asylum in there. It sounds it yeah, sounds it does, demented. Yeah. So um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's I, I don't get it though because it's not it's they're not being they're not sexy. And I know yeah. you know Sunita yeah. would I'm, I'm sure at, at, at some you know when she did so much and everything and there's like properly like rippling basted torsos cavorting all around. <laughs> basted. <laughs> What a description! That's <laughs> lovely. Like that, yeah. You know what? You know what I mean. They've had a good. They're they're, they're oiled, yeah. oiled, oiled up, and 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 ready to ready to go. But um, these guys are just. They're very kind of. There's this weird sort of, uh, sort of very weirdly inoffensive kind of almost sub frat boy asexual thing about them. Mm. It weirded me out a little bit because it's like yeah. you know, it's not like you know here here comes the the kind of the beefcake. Yeah, yeah. They're not that far removed from uh, the the second series of Alvida's own pet, <laughs> whether on the building site in Spain. You know, they they all look like a load of wains. <laughs> they do a bit. They do. But a yeah, bit. there is a tone. You're right. There is this slightly hysterical tone. It's almost as if they've been, you know, they've been sort of slightly starved of of um, you know of jigging masculinity at this point. In, <laughs> yeah. In the, you know, it's like where yeah. are the boys? Could I could I just say I, I, I'm not saying I've, I, I'm, I'm not name dropping here, but um, I've had dealings with Sunita as well, uh, similarly vague. Oh, have you no, known? similarly vague and absolutely she she of course wouldn't remember it, but uh, it's just something I remember. 
I was on a train um, uh, in the Midlands. That's all I can remember. It was between Coventry and Wolverhampton. I know that. Um, and I remember sitting down and, and somebody behind me had their feet like up against the, the, the seat and was kicking Ugh. it. You know what I mean? And prodding oh, it. I and I that. was getting really, really wound up. But I didn't look around until I needed to go to the toilet. And then I, I went to the toilet. It was fucking Sunita. She... Oh, no. And I, I was staggered by this. Um, went to the toilet and came back. She carried on, I've got to say, because I wanted to see. If it was just a normal person, I would have sat somewhere else. But I wanted to see if Sunita, the pop star, would continue with her rudeness. And I have to say she did. Um, she had headphones fucking on. She was listening to music. So she was jigging slightly to that. Um, but yeah, right. I just I had Sunita's feet in my back all the way to Wolverhampton. Oh man, you should have you should have just put your foot down, man. You should have had a go at her. You know, she 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 was tired of taking the lead. She wanted a man to dominate her. <laughs> I have remember. I have always been scared of pop stars, so I, I, yeah, I just kept it on. But yeah, so I just wanted to note that she's not got good train etiquette. I suspect she'd put her bag on the seat next to her, etc. Oh, d- d- definitely. And she'd have a she'd she'd have a coffee and not drink half of it and leave the lid off, with the danger of spillage at any time. <laughs> Fuck Sunita. Fuck Sunita. Anything else we need to say about this disgusting woman? <laughs> no, no, she doesn't deserve it. After that, after that, Neil, she doesn't deserve to be spoken about a moment longer. <laughs> One thing I do need to get in. Mm-hmm. Uh, Neil, you were talking about your indie boys beforehand. Yeah. Uh, and right at the end of this song, one of them in the audience with quite lank hair turns round, faces the camera and mimes the chorus yeah. right at us. <laughs> I love that. Because it's a song everyone knows, no matter what yes, you're into. It is. It's just, yes, it's... it is. Because because of Slapshot. Oh, what's an... And I... I... I don't know if because of that film now. I, I just think it, it was a big hit. I just think everyone knows that. Song. Yes, it was. Yeah, but but it it, it 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 weighed steady on our mind throughout the eighties, due to the many repeats on Central late night yeah. of slaps of of, of Slapshot. Central late at night, man. I yeah, remember when they used to Central. run horror movies at about two in the morning under the heading oh. under the heading Let's Fret Together. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> that's the lamest catchphrase ever. And, and of course, the other central connection to, uh, to to this week's charts is, of course, the theme tune to Prisoner Cell Block H, ah. which we got in central long before yeah, anyone else. We, we knew the score. We knew about the freak and all of it before anyone else. Always yeah, ahead we, of the yeah. game in the Midlands. Totally, yeah. <laughs> totally. I remember being in London in the early 90s and uh, watching episodes of Prisoner Cell Block H I'd already seen three years previously mm-hmm. in central, just thinking, yeah, this... Shitty little backwater and its and its poor knowledge of Australian soap operas. <laughs> you just reminded me of that that is a song that I now want my band to cover. I love that song. You've heard the Lovers Rock version of I it, haven't, haven't you? Mate. No, put it on the oh, put it on the put it Judy, on the, um, Judy the Boucher. Judy Boucher, yeah, it'll be on the video playlist. Oh, it's it's amazing. It is. It's amazing. Oh, I'm so upset that that song isn't on this chart music but then again you know it would be it would have to be a six hour long podcast <laughs> I could talk for hours upon the majesty of Priz mm-hmm. so the following week right back where we started from stayed at number four its highest position the follow up a cover of Robert Knight's Love on a Mountaintop got to number 20 in October of this year and she'd ply her rut of 70s soul covers into the early 90s 
and be a bastard on trains. <laughs> Sunita, right back where we started from. Okay, here's the big numbers. This week's top ten. At this week's number ten, Nano Cherry with Manchild. Climbing one at number nine, I Don't Wanna Get Hurt. That's Donna Summer. Cindy Lauper is up nine at eight, I Drove All Night. And at number seven, it's Natalie Cole with Miss You Like Crazy. Guns N' Roses up two at six, Sweet Child of Mine. No change at number five for Madonna, Express Yourself. At four, up two for Sunita, right back where we started from. At three, up nine, back to life, that's Soul to Soul. No move at two for Cliff Richard, the best of me. And so, for the second week, Britain's number one is Jason Donovan, sealed with a kiss. Victoria, Australia in 1968, Jason Donovan was a child actor who landed the part of Scott Robinson in the soap opera Neighbours in 1986. After his on-screen bride Kylie Minogue signed a record deal and linked up with Pete Waterman, Jace followed suit and his debut single Nothing Can Divide Us got to number five in September of 1988. After bagging the Christmas number one in 1988 in a duet with Kylie Minogue, especially for you, he scored his first solo number one with Too Many Broken Hearts, and this is the follow-up. It's a cover of the 1962 Brian Highland record, and it went straight in at number one last week. Fucking hell. Mm-hmm, indeed. Fucking hell. Neighbours at the time was a really big deal for me. I mean, Mm. I don't mean I pinned my life on it as such, but this was when I could go home for lunch at school. Yeah. um, Because I live quite near my school. So, you know, it was always the routine of watching Neighbours at 1.30 and then legging it back to school after it had finished. Yeah. Um, So Neighbours was was a real regular thing for me. Um, I hated Neighbours. I I I watched it. I'm not sure I liked it, but I watched it. Yeah. It provided a few moments of of pleasurable oddity, like Bouncer's Dream, but not as many (laughs) moments of oddity as, as Home and Away. Yeah, um, where the summit, of course, was reached when Bobby morphed out of the fridge in front of Ailsa. If you if you've never seen that clip from Home and Away in the early nineties, yeah. I highly recommend it. This song is a great song. I really like the four voices and the Brian Hyland version that you mentioned, mm. and even the Bobby Vinton version in the seventies. It's a really bleak, blank song in a, in, a, in a way. Yeah, it's a spooky song. It's quite a spooky song. It reminds me of Johnny Remember Me. Uh, Jason sings it okay. Mm. But the backing could not have been more bland and karaoke-ish. It sounds yeah. like preset library music. Yeah. Scott Aiken and Waterman were shit at ballads. Yes. They were much better at high-energy <laughs> pop. Um, it has none of the kind of europhilia, if you like, because they were very into European music. All the funk mm. that made things like Mel and Kim work. Yeah. And I, I remember objecting to Static and Waterman massively at the time, not just not really for their production line nature of, of, of what they made, but because by 1989, they'd 
sort of stopped bossing things in a way. They'd got less cheeky. I liked the way that the Reynolds girls thing seemed to provoke rock boys. I mm. liked their brazenness in a sense. Here they're getting a bit more polite, conventional, and Simon Cowellish in a way. Yeah. Um, they did cater for a massive pop market, which was yeah. there and was only really catered for by Americans and dull old British bands. And and Mel and Kim and stuff like that I loved. It was achievable fun and it was it was lovely, lovely records. But this cover, it seems really careless. It seems like they, they thought about, you know, they thought about it for five minutes yeah. and knocked out a really identical backing track. Jason tries his best, bless him. But it's it's a great song let down by a really shit boring arrangement, I think. Yeah, it's really insipid, isn't it? It's like <clears throat> yeah, really yeah. tinny and wishy and washy and yeah, nothingy. It's really um these these are things that uh, always make me think of David Stubbs' immortal line. It's like punk never happened, it's like nothing ever happened. <laughs> <laughs> I mean Jace was being kind of like promoted as as uh, you know, as top pop hunk at the moment and you just look mm. at this and go fucking hell is this is this what you're supposed to aspire to yet another pop star masking their sexuality another one allegedly allegedly oh sorry yeah <laughs> gotta get that in see i mean it's an important record in a sense this in a weird way because it's the first um non-charity single to debut at number one since two tribes which is years Jesus. before this you know that so, which is, is- depressing isn't it? it it's really odd and and also you'll notice in the rundown before this uh the top 10 rundown it's an amazingly female dominated top 10 yeah um, it's mostly fe- uh, female artists and female bands but you'll notice at number two cliff richard's 100th single yes um which was heavily promoted as such and went straight in at number two yeah but what happens the week after i mean this actual performance from um Jason is is from the week before isn't it it's not actually Mm. from this week it's from the previous week's episode where he was on with like Transvision Fam the Beautiful South and D-Mob and other people and Nicky Campbell hosted it this is cut in from that but but you'll notice both Cliff's record which went straight in at number two and this that went straight in at number one start dropping almost immediately after yeah and uh, I might be reading too much into it and maybe the charts have always been kind of a marketing tool but you know, by the mid '90s, a first week number one entry is mandatory if you're a big yes. artist. You go yeah, in straight at number one. That slow climb is yeah. is starting to go, and the charts are really becoming what they eventually became—not an index of the nation's taste, but a kind of endlessly rotating index of what a few thousand people are into, yeah. um, not the nation. And and it, it this record's appearance tells you a lot. Suddenly at number one, but it's swift disappearance also tells you quite a bit about the way the charts yeah. are going at that time and, and i have to say that the following week well you know we'll, we'll, we'll actually know we'll get to that later i mean <laughs> jason is in an awful baggy flowery shirt that probably mm. cost a fortune tucked into his jeans and looking like he, he, he just looks like the the saturday lad at tony and guy doesn't he <laughs> he seems sweet but he seems apologetic do you know what i mean like he knows it's crap yeah, and you know he's got to do this. Yeah, he knows it. He knows it's shite as well. Yeah, I mean because Stockating Waterman used to brag on about how many hundreds of songs they've got in reserve and they'll dominate the charts for for a decade to come and everything. And all of a sudden, like the oh, what's this? Why is this a cover version then? 
Yeah. What's but, going but, on here? But that's why Stott Aitken and Walkman always slightly resist uh, any kind of co-option by music journalists in a way. We love pop, right? Mm. And we love pop people and, and people who are into pop. But they were also... They had a they had a really brutal commercial sense to them as well, um, where they they could at some point stop caring about the music and know that putting this person this song with this singer would be a, would be an immediate hit. And they do it in this case in the laziest way possible. It genuinely does sound like a really shit karaoke backing. It doesn't sound like any thoughts gone into it at all. Yeah, yeah. That, that's you see that's cynical. You know, if you if, if yeah, you're going to yeah. triple. That is purely cynical. That's nakedly. Absolutely, Jason yeah. was this, um, you know, he'd been on the cover of Smash Hits a lot and he had his, his, his lovely hair and he, he had this, you know, massive... I mean, it's it's kind of the equivalent now of, of when somebody, like, you can't get anywhere. It's like you can't get a book published unless you've already got, like, a... a unless you're on telly, you know, it's like you've got a, yeah. a public profile or if you're, or if you're a, a, a YouTuber with, you know, a million, a million subscribers. It's like that's, yeah. you know, those are the people who are going to be at the front of the queue... It's not about, mm. and, and it's it's kind of like that. It's like, well, he had the profile already because he was on this massive soap mm. opera. So, you know, he's going to, um, but he's a very wholesome, he's a wholesome lad, isn't he? In a way that yeah. you can't possibly, and I know that girls, you know, I know girls fancied him and, and, and screamed and stuff, but, you know, at the time, I just, I didn't get it at all. It was, it was like, there's, you know, I he looks, he looks like a nice friendly chap who you'd you know you who look very friendly trustworthy chap but he's not there's nothing yeah. of the pop star about him no there's no edge there's no edge to him at all no um it comes to something when craig mclaughlin is, is made to look like a rock god by somebody <laughs> yes. you know what I mean? craig mclaughlin yeah. and or check one two yeah <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's got four very saucy backing dancers you can't backing dance. Okay, this is I have a real I have beef with this, yeah. right? What? No, you go ahead, Doug. What are you What are you doing with? It? I mean, they are they're, they're giving it their their best as 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 people do, but it's like it seems a bit unfair on Jason as well to to kind of you you really are um, point, yeah. pointing up how how bland he is when it's like it's a it's a yeah. ballad. This is a this is a slow jam, yeah. and you've got yeah. you've got like you know you've got like a pack of dancers behind you, but they're doing the kind of proper legs and co acting out the song thing. Yes. So, you know, yeah. um, so they're waving goodbye. I don't want to mm-hmm. say goodbye, but they're waving, waving goodbye. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I, I have to, you know, it's like... I mean, they're, they're doing, you're right, Sarah, they're doing, they're doing the actions so close that it gets to the point where you're watching it just to see how they mime the word September. <laughs> and they just yeah. they just do another wave. That's a challenge, they, a challenge they, for any dance. Well, yeah, goodbye. they, they puss it out of it. Yeah, but, um, you know, it, it's a bit... It's it's quite a difficult watch this because I do I do remember it leaving me cold at the time but but now yeah. it kind of leaves me it's it's weird going going back to this you know the stuff of my of my childhood for for this podcast mm. and the the bright stuff the good stuff is is kind of brighter and more you know and it really takes you back and then the the other stuff is is you know you can really can really sort of see through it and hear through it and go wow there's really nothing there yeah yeah, yeah absolutely I think I think the the point about cynicism is spot on this is brutal naked cynicism. Because yeah. it's utterly unconcerned with the song. The song starts, isn't the first line, it's going to be Cold Lonely Summer. I mean, it, it, it's a dark song and there's no darkness in this. It's yeah. completely sunny and bright and, and, you know, utterly, utterly unsuitable for, for, for the song. So, yeah, 
One of the worst number ones, perhaps, of the 80s, I think. Having an Australian say it's going to be a cold, lonely summer. No, it's not. <laughs> you're in Australia. You're going to have loads of barbecues and you're going to run about on a beach with a dog and go surfing, you jammy, jammy bastard. Shut up. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It and of course, be- the, the, yeah. the other interesting thing is at this time, you know, Jason Donovan's fighting with the image of Scott Robinson, isn't it? Who's mm. probably at this time still mulleted up to fuck <laughs> on on Neighbours twice twice a day. Danny was my hero in Neighbours. Do you remember a character called Danny early on, a bit of a bad lad, and he had a Stooges poster on his wall, which always right. blew my mind. That was that was always a joy to see. Good lord! I mean, because at this time during the eighties, I really wanted to emigrate to Australia, and watching Neighbours put me off. I've periodically had thoughts about Australia, but it is it is genuinely the creatures put me off. Yeah, the the, the animals they're terrifying. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's too many ways to get killed by animals in Australia. That that has always kind of slightly put me off moving there. I think Australians make all that up though to to put people off. <laughs> what's what's put me off is that everybody seems so bloody happy all the time. You know, mm. this is the thing. Oh, not in Australia nowadays. They're just as miserably racist as everyone else is. No, but you can the happy, happy racist, unapologetic racist. Yeah, frolicking. Yeah, they're, they're racist, mm. but they say mate at the end after they've slurred you. <laughs> so the following week, sealed with a kiss, dropped down to number two, knocked off the top spot by Soul to Soul with Back to Life. The follow-up, Every Day I Love You More, got to number two in September of 1989, and he'd have 11 more top 40 hits over the next three years, including a final number one with Any Dream Will Do in 1991. He spent the rest of the 90s returning to acting and not being gay at all. Florida in 1950, Tom Petty worked as a gardener and a gravedigger before forming the country rock band Mud Crutch in 1970. After that band split up in the mid-70s, he embarked on a short-lived solo career before forming Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, who skirted the outer reaches of the top 40 with anything that's rock and roll and American Girl in 1977. After a more successful career in America, Tom Petty was roped into the Travelling Wilburys with Bob Dylan, Roy Orbison and Jeff Lynne, and he released his debut solo LP, Full Moon Fever, in April of 1989. This is the first cut from that album, co-written by Jeff Lynne, and it's up this week from number 35 to number 29, and we're treated to a minute or so of the video which features Petty playing with Lynn, Harrison and Ringo Starr on the drums, even though the latter didn't perform on the record. Tom Petty, of course, died uh, last year, and uh, I was quite shocked at the amount of British people who were kind of like uh, a bit upset about it, 
because he never really meant much in the UK, did he? He didn't, but I remember this song coming out, and I remember seeing it on Top of the Pops, and, and loving it, really loving it. And, and he's actually one of those people that I've still kind of stacked up as somebody I must investigate, because I haven't properly listened to the albums or anything like that. But I, I like the kind of groove he gets, and I like him, and there's something about him I like. And I like yeah. this song a lot. I mean, despite the fact... I, I, oh, man... Because he stood on a glass table in this, I wrote Eunice Stubbs in my notes. <laughs> oh, no. But, um, but, but despite that fact, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I must investigate Tom Petty and I, I would like to know what I should be investigating because I, I quite like this song. Yeah, I, 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 did, uh, I, I did a bit of... Um, he was some, someone who was quite sort of background for me. You know, I was, I was kind of aware of, of, of him as a, as a presence, you know, but I did a bit of investigating after he died, like a lot of people. I think it, it uh, kind of... You know, because everyone just kind of descends upon Spotify mm. and, and, you know, kind of throws all the numbers out. But it was it was really, yeah, I think it was it was a shocker. It happened, of course, the same, basically the same the same night as um, as the mass shooting in, in Vegas. And I just remember people yeah. kind of going, fuck everything, because yeah. there's a particular yeah. and I know that you, you have to be really careful about conflating. People will get on you about conflating, you know, the, the death of, of one celebrity and, you know, and a hundred um, um you know ordinary citizens yeah but there was a very it it was such a a shit day for 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 america for like american goodness and wholesomeness you know this was a yeah. um and and the idea of america as as yeah. as somewhere that that has that is great and isn't full of mentalists yeah you know sometimes these things do align and there is kind of a a, a you know a a a, mo- a particular kind of cultural pain that that is felt and i think you know we kind of got got the uh, got got a whiff of that because there was this very kind of warm he's just very you know there's this real whiff of america that you get off of listening mm. to tom petty is this real yeah. warmth and sweetness about the thing and yeah. this kind of this relaxed kind of confidence and so i think that kind of and and quite you know not actually as syrupy or as sentimental as people think, you know. So that's a real. I've always got like a real bit, and so listening to him after that, and just thinking about everything, just going, yeah, this this is this really sucks. Hmm. I mean, it's what life at the moment does seem to be waiting for the next thing that will make us all say fuck everything. Um, yeah, there always seems to be one around the corner. But but and that, what Sarah was just saying really reminded me. I think we had a discussion, Sarah. Actually, remember when Amy Amy Winehouse passed on? And it was simultaneous, I think, with the Breivik shooting in Norway. And immediately, so many smart asses were piping up, why, why do you care about a single when, you know, 100 people got killed? This idiotic thing that you can't, because you can't, you know, if you can't feel compassion for a single person, then your compassion for 100 people is totally fraudulent, I think. So I, I remember that simultaneity with, with Tom Petty and the Vegas shooting. Um, but yeah, um, I didn't investigate his music afterwards, but I, but I want to because I, I think there's a lot of riches in there. Uh, he's one of those. He's one of those ones who passed who nobody had a bad thing to say about him. And yeah, his heart was in the right place, definitely. Yeah. yeah, people I trust like his music, so I must investigate it. There's just a real kind of positive presence that he has, and of course, this is something that people find insufferable about kind of popular. Um, American music, you know, or or Americans themselves. It's like God, you're, you know, like I was, like I was just so, uh, so 
um, rudely saying about about Australia. It's the kind of it's the happiness and the positivity. Of course, that is not something that's probably not the first thing that people think of now about America. So there really is this kind of you know Tom Petty was one of those people who seemed to pass and take something with him. Yeah, which we are going to miss. Well, it, Tom Petty is, is yeah, he's very, very American, but without being jingoistic. His, yeah, songs, yeah, yeah. his songs and his music, they're about American dreams. It's a kind of American road that he's writing about. Do you know what I mean? It's always an American environment that he's writing about. At the time, I probably would have been resistant to that as well. But now, um, I now don't the mind Now Pickens are leaner, yeah. <laughs> Now I don't mind. I, I, I wouldn't mind um, exploring Tom Petty. It's quite. It's quite generous as well. It's quite. It's not that kind of insular. It's not. Yeah. There's none of that kind of arrogance in there. It's very kind of, you know. It's just the other. It's just pitched just right because it's very sort of. It's it's quite self-effacing without being cringy or kind of or arch or any of that. It's just there's yeah. Yeah. I'm just. I'm feeling sad even talking about it. It's it's a rotten. Oh day man. Yeah. Noel Edmonds is banging it relentlessly on his radio station. <laughs> In his in his one man battle against Lloyd's Bank. Oh no! Why, yeah. why did we have yeah. to end up back there? Yeah, sorry. You know, everything everything comes back, doesn't it, to Noel? <laughs> and of course, the video as well. That 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 would have uh, put me off because there's fucking Ringo thumping away, and it is a bit smug. The video is a bit smug. To yeah, video. yeah. Look at me with my mates. They're famous. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I did. I always did enjoy it though. When you get, it was like an extra treat, wasn't it? When Top of the Pops, because sometimes they would they would really screw you over and they they play you out, and it would be like the credits would be going. You'd be like, oh no, oh no, I really like this, and you only get a little bit of it. And this mm-hmm. was like, yeah, like you said, it's like a minute and and a bit and whatnot. It's like that's a decent chunk of you know. I'm yeah. quite I'm quite happy yeah, yeah. with that. That's a nice little that's a nice little put yeah. in. So the following week, I Won't Back Down moved up one place to number 28, its highest position. The follow-up, Running Down a Dream, only got to number 55. And the only other time he'd get some sexy top 40 action was when Too Good To Be True with the Reformed Heartbreakers got to number 34 in 1992. Tom Petty died in 2017, but two years previous, him and Jeff Lynne successfully called out Sam Smith for being a thieving bastard when he ripped off I Won't Back Down Mm -hmm. for Stay With Me. Well done, Tom. So, what's on television afterwards? Well, BBC One is now showing EastEnders, where Ali Osman is looking for some much-needed extra cash. The episode of Last of the Summer Wine, where the protagonists take up skiing with dinner trays. Alf Garnett finds out his daughter Rita is knocking about with a doctor in sickness and in health. Phil Cool stars in Cool It. Then it's question time and a by-election special. BBC Two is halfway through round four of the Cardiff Singer of the World competition. David Mellor is interviewed in Who Cares? Indeed. <laughs> then the documentary series Europeans talks to some Europeans about green issues. Then it's a travel show, a short documentary about bulimia, news night, and the late show finishes off the evening, focusing on the 50th birthday of Batman. ITV is showing Hitman the game show hosted by Nick Owen, followed by a bomb scare at Sunhill Police Station in The Bill. Then this week, LA Law, News at 10, Prisoner Cell Block H, and What the Papers Say. 
Channel 4 is showing hard news with Raymond Snoddy looking at the tabloid witch hunt against Bobby Robson. Then Kazuko's Karaoke Club features John Cooper Clark and Janice Long singing Leader of the Pack. Then the film The Company of Wolves and finishes off with the documentary series Propaganda and the Russian film Private Life. So, what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow, my dears? Well, I've sort of jotted down that I'll be talking about Rebel MC and what a sellout he is and how much I hate Jason Donovan. But you know what? I wouldn't be talking to anyone in the playground because all my bloody mates had left. So um, I'd be, what I was mainly doing then, was sitting up in the library uh, at school, which afforded good views of the school, wishing Mm. the whole place would burn down. And I was (laughs) was there to see it. Um, Yeah, it's horrible being 16, man, or 17. You don't like Fridays, do you? It's just a moody fucking time, isn't it? Sarah? Um, Just fuzzbox all day long, really. Yeah. Yeah, my girls. And what were we buying on Saturday? I'd have been buying Fuzzbox, I think. Um, and I think that's probably... Uh, maybe Orange Crush. Mm. Yeah, you can you can probably figure out... Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I had... Um, I, I think I still do have, actually, um, my cassette of Big Bang. I have to dig it out. Because I still have a tape deck as well that I can play it on. So really, I should... Uh, that's what I should go and do after this. So what does this episode tell us about 1989? Mm. And the summer of... I think it tells us slightly that the 90s have, in a sense, already started, i.e. Mm. kind of messy blanding out of the 80s, in a way, where the 80s seemingly had clothes and styles tied into subcultures. This has kind of evaporated by now. Um, on top of the pops. We have to always say on top of the pops, because, of course, out in the wider musical world, amazing things are happening, as we've talked about already, in hip-hop, in dance music, in all kinds of different areas. On top of the pops... Um, people seemingly want to belong um, to the mainstream, it seems. There's no, I mean, bar Fuzzbox, there's no performance here that's kind of startling, surprising, or in any way, you know, memorable in a way. Um, so like the audience, pop is becoming pretty bland in 89. We're, we're getting into the kind of the the, the, the death throes of, of Stock Aitken and Waterman, really, or it's like mm, yeah. the, the kind of, it's like that is that is on its way out and it's going to be replaced. That doesn't mean that even though they tried to kind of um, co-opt pop for themselves, you know, and it's like, we are pop. And it's like, you're not completely though, are you? You are at this point just phoning it in and, you know, something else is going to, is going to sprout after you. I mean, as as far as music goes, it is, it is strange that we're, we're kind of like one year away from the, from the acid house boom. And there's Mm -hmm. no house music on this episode. Yeah. Yeah, perhaps and, uh, uh, with all the names that are involved in this episode, the most important word in all of those names is the Anne that's in the middle of Double Trouble and the Rebel MC. And mm. um, that ampersand is important because because in the early 90s, the charts would become flooded with artists that would have an and in the middle because they were more or, anonymous. Or feet. Yes, exactly, because they were more anonymous. And, or, and the inverses. The industry, as we, we discussed in previous episodes when we talked about the 90s, really didn't know how to cope with that. Started reasserting themselves in the mid-90s with the big bands like Blur and Oasis and things like that. But we were about to enter quite an interesting time in a sense. Precisely that fast movement in and out of the charts also meant that, you know, perhaps artists from genres and areas that weren't normally featured in the charts could get in, making basically, you know, dance music. 
um, we're, we're on the cusp of that happening. This is the last clinging on, I guess, uh, of the kind of traditional, here's an artist, here's Jason Donovan doing an, a 40-year-old cover. I'm not saying that disappeared, but it certainly started becoming less frequent and, and the charts started becoming more dominated by what people were actually listening to which tended to be, yeah, dance music. Yeah, and uh, the other, I think the other major event in this episode is the debut of R.E.M. Because we're starting to see um, bands that you, you'd only hear about in in the in the Yankees or at your student night uh, mm. suddenly appearing on top of the pops. I mean, we're about five months away from, you know, that episode of 1989 when the Stone Roses and the Happy Mondays are on. Yeah. So, yeah, we're, we're starting to see things change. Well, Top of the Pops is losing its power to a certain extent. You, you said yeah. that you watched MTV quite a lot of the time, and, and that's certainly starting to have an effect here. Top of the Pops is not now our only pop music show every week, as it was. Um, our only window into pop. It's just one of, you know, innumerable amount of music shows that you could see. And that power of the programme is going. So that is the end of another episode of Chart Music. All that remains for me to do now is the usual shit. www.chart-music.co.uk You can join us on Facebook, facebook.com slash chartmusicpodcast or you can get involved with us at Twitter at chartmusictotp. Thank you very much, Sarah B. Cheers, love. Thank you very much, Neil Kulkarni. I think you'll find it's come sorry. <laughs> Thanks for listening, punksters. My name's Al Needham. I've got a podcast and I'm going to use it. <laughs> Chart music. I have just been told that the dance marathon is continuing despite the threat that a bomb is about to blow Wentworth Detention Centre sky high. Four of the inmates, with no thought of the danger to themselves, are still in there dancing away. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.